and welcome to Dark Days Radio, Darkling number 27, and this is part 4 of the Chronicle Design series that we've been running. Uh, we've had a long, long pause since uh, the last one, as people have been moved around and doing actual stuff in real life. So, once more, I am joined by James. Hello there. Who's now in Cambridge, who's moved all the way back away from Germany. And it's glorious. Well, <laughs> it means we had a cool gaming convention, so fuck you. Anyway, um, and we're also joined by Steve, as always. Greetings, fellow role players. And uh, as a special treat, uh, her first time on Darker Days as sort of an outside member contributor in some ways is my wife Sam. Uh, hello. Okay. So, where should we begin? How is everyone? That's normally how we always start these things. James, you said you're having fun? I'm, I'm doing amazingly well, thank you. you have a new job? I've got, yeah, got a new job. Lots of sideways promotions there, so I'm doing lots more stuff than I'm being paid for. But it's very interesting, very exciting. And, yeah, I'm enjoying Secret World's Halloween content. Mmm, I need to get in on that. Yes. And, Steve, how are things going with you? You're... Your, I can't remember, what's your roleplay group playing right now? You're doing Mage? No, mate, we're doing Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, yeah, do Vampire 20th, uh, 20th edition, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, 20th edition, 25th anniversary. Yeah, we're not on 20th edition. Bloody hell. How's that going? That's just going good, thanks for asking. Uh, we just wrapped up the end of episode two, and they've discovered the identity of the mysterious Black Rider, which has left, led to the tragic demise of Angel. I know that there's only maybe ten people in the world who know about that, but I get it off my chest just to say what up to the Diceman. Ah, okay, cool. And Sam could post possibly reveal what we've been up to. Um, we went to a gaming convention at the weekend um, here in Germany, uh, in Essen. I think uh, it's the biggest one in it, Germany. Apparently, yeah. Um, it was quite huge and very crowded on Saturday. It's very, very warm. Uh, there was a lot of stuff to buy, so we got quite excited walking around and looking at things. Uh, we met a really cool artist there, actually, called uh, Nigel Sade. Yeah, um, so Nigel Sade is currently involved in design elements, uh, art, de- art elements like logos and so forth for Shadowrun 4th Edition. Cool. Oh, wow. And... He's previously done artwork for Vampire the Eternal Struggle. Mm. So I will be pimping I will be pimping his website in the show notes because actually, you know, he's meant to be trying to work out how to how to get the fuck out of America and move over to Europe. Because we were going on about how healthcare in Germany is pretty damn good. So um yeah, uh, it was kinda cool. What else did we see or do there? There was lots of LARPing stuff and battle reenactment equipment. Yeah, some cool weaponry and things. Lots of board games. Cecil's of Catan has such a huge stall over there. Uh, I think that's the thing, I think over here Germans are really into their board games. Uh, yeah, really, really yeah. into it. Got some cheap war machine stuff, so I've got a box set of trolls for hordes. So I have some stuff that I can control by. And <gasps> there was something else. We got some artwork, and yeah, it was pretty good. I think, yeah, it'd be better to go on a on a weekday. So next year I might take the um, Friday off and go on Friday when it's quieter. What's um, the name of that con? Uh, that one is Sh- is Spiel Spiel, and it's in Essen. I'll put it in the show notes. It's good fun. Like there's lots of stuff there. It's it's um yeah. I can't think of. We met some people from like Düsseldorf Gamers Group as well. So 
we've made some more friends and met some people in person, finally. Very cool. And, oh, well, of course, we, we've run the first, we just finished the first ep- uh, episode of uh, Vampire the Requiem season two of my Manchester setting, so I'm back into actually running shit. And after was, a year. After a year, so that's <laughs> been really, really good. So at some point, James's old character from my setting, Chuck Taylor, Chuck will, Taylor. I will be <laughs> run him as a cameo in the setting. Um, somehow I'll work him into it. Or unless unless we can work out some way to get James to play by a guy. Yeah, that would be excellent. That would be interesting. I I would be um I would be very happy to take that role back again. Mm. Um, I was just talking about role play stories today, and man, Chuck was awesome. <laughs> cool. Which kind of leads into the whole point of this one. So, um, Chronicle Design Part 4, the player troop. And basically what this, the whole point about this one is that playing a game, running a game, running a Chronicle is, uh, it's, it's two, it's one part managing your own notes and planning stuff out, and it's another part is managing a group of people who could technically be, possibly be, the most awkward group of people in the world to deal with. And uh, we'll be looking at factors to do with, like, how do you even recruit players to your game, uh, how to pick out the people that might not really be the best people to game with, and how to possibly deal with problem players, and then about how to guide players through character uh, generation and, you know, putting limits and restrictions. And finally, we'll be looking at uh, dealing with... uh, Setting limits, you know, problematic content in games, because this is World of Darkness and shit happens, and so we're going to be looking at um, those problematic issues. So, where do we begin? Recruiting players. Steve, I guess your player group is currently made up of people that you've known for quite quite a long time. Well, uh, you'd think that, Chris, but oddly okay. enough, no. Um, okay. Brilliant. There's, there's uh, three people that have uh, joined our roleplay group that we've never met before. Uh, we threw up a shout-out uh, on the UK RPG forums and just advertised our group that we were doing it in our local town. We live in rural Shropshire. So, uh, in the Shire. Yeah. In the Shire, yeah. So, indeed, uh, roleplayers here are few and far between. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> And like I said, we threw a shout out and we got three responses saying, hey, we live in the next kind of big town over. Uh, we're interested in coming along. Can we turn up? And lo and behold, they've come and integrated themselves in with a group of guys that, as you said, that I've known for years. I mean, one of my players, I was the uh, best man at his wedding. Uh, one of the other players at the table is my brother. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking people I've known for years and years and years. And there's a lot of uh, history in, in that. But, uh, like I say, about a, a third of the group at the minute is made up of brand new guys. Oh, cool. James. Yeah. Gaming group-wise, because you're, I guess you're, uh, you're, because you moved again, you're back in the uh, situation of recruiting again. And I guess you're looking closer to home for recruiting players. I mean, I, I work at a games company again. Which is, you know, it's nice. It, there's, there's a lot of people there that I can, um, that are interested in things like roleplay games. But I, I much prefer to play with people I know because that lets me tailor what I'm going to do in the game to how I think that person is. Yeah. Like I, I pre, I kind of mentally vet people for, um, for what I'm wanting to run. And sometimes I've, I've done like a little, uh, 
I did a little one shot for D&D when I left one of my old jobs and I knew what the people were like. I knew that really they wanted, regardless of whatever I put into the game, they just really wanted to go and crash some skulls and cast magic missiles. You know, they, they wanted fighting. And that was, but that, yeah. So I'm, I try and only recruit from friends as yeah. opposed to strangers. I would say I've, I've had mixed, I've mixed up the ways of recruiting. So, um, obviously at school, it was ba- everyone that basically role play for me was part of, um, the people I did war games with. So it was a no brainer. You already knew who we were dealing with. You knew that you had all the same interests and shared experiences. Uh, university, again, that was the people I was working with. So I worked at Games Workshop and game, Games Workshop staff members are generally goth metalheads who like gore and, and horror. No stereotypes. No stereotypes. Not talking about stereotypes at all. I would never do that. But, but, um, and then, um, the role play group I was in for quite a while, uh, during PhD, I met them via a friend of a friend. So I had some friends doing a, doing PhDs in like biochemistry kind of type stuff. And then they were like, oh, we like this type of music. Met them for New Year's Eve. And then it was like, oh, you're role players. And it's like, yeah, what you role play? And it's like, yeah. And so the vampire books come out and I was like, oh, okay. And again, you know, they're, they're all kind of like goth, EVM, industrial music kind of loving type people. Though I have obviously recruited people at a gaming store before. So, um, in Manchester, there's what, Fanboy 3? Was the game, local gaming store there? And so I ran some games there. And, but, you know, for that, people would turn up and I would obviously chat to them one evening before even getting to roll up characters, so I need to know they were on the same page as what I was running. And then I guess that was kind of similar to what happened in Leamington then. Uh, pretty much, yeah. So, obviously, Sam, you got into gaming because it was something to, to a hobby to participate in with me and me socialise with uh, friends. No, I, I got into oh, you've got that. pop because, um, well, I, my background uh, in uh, role playing is pretty much online stuff. So uh, just forum based, and I used to role play on Live Journal many moons ago. Uh, I do it on Tumblr right now. But uh, when I did tabletop with Chris, it's because we moved to a new city and we didn't have a role play group. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was the first person to be recruited because I'd never played tabletop before, and then it sort of started from there. Yeah. So James got added to the group because you were a friend of a friend of Sam's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we got Kate and Mark, so was, they seemed to be the only other goths in the village. <laughs> and then, but obviously Mark was into the same sort of stuff. And then we also got Heather and Steve later on because they worked. I know, I, I knew Heather from Heather and Steve from university. When exactly. I left, I, set, I got you guys in touch with them. And then Chris and Emily, we recruited from the local wargaming group. But there was a person at that wargaming club who I knew from Manchester. So, again, they were friends and friends. And then we met Dave, uh, David and Kat. David contacted me through Google Wave back in the day. I say back in the day. It wasn't that long ago Google Wave was running. But um, he contacted me because he was like, oh, you live in the same area and you've run Changeling based in... You, you're writing stuff for Changeling based in Venice. Guess what? I've been doing the same thing. And so... We met and it was like, shit, we've kind of written all the same stuff and realised that we lived round the corner from each other practically in Manchester back when I was doing PhD. So 
Yeah, my experience of recruiting players has varied. And right now, who we're gaming with, uh, Ben, we um, I got via a online forum, you know, for recruitment. So you know, there's many different ways you can find players, um, and they all require kind of. I think they they it, you have a mixed experience with how you have to deal with people to re- when you recruit them. Um, so so well, I would say there are advantages and disadvantages to sort of both sides of it, you know, uh, playing with existing friends and playing with people you don't know. Because if you're playing with people you don't know um, and you just sort of go straight into it, then you don't really know what they're like and they could turn out to be like a horrible person or they make other people uncomfortable or something like that. Whereas if it's with your existing friends, you could always run into some sort of role-play drama. Yeah. Playing, you, you might not get along like in the role-playing sense, but you get a lot outside of role-playing, and it could cause fallout and things like that. So, yeah, advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, there's also the uh, the, the, the thing that uh, friends will push another friend a bit further than a stranger would push a friend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, know, you know what I mean? That, uh, the other thing as well, that sometimes we hear horror stories as well about, you know, people that you meet that are strangers that turn out to be absolute weirdos. <laughs> so you're like, whoa, okay. Um, sometimes, though, you've got to throw yourself open. I've got to, I've got to sh- chuck this out there from my point of view. That uh, If you don't throw yourself out there, Sometimes you miss opportunities to meet people yeah. that are actually pretty cool. And, yeah. You know, always give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, and uh, always talking to people is the big thing, isn't it? So. Well, I think that's the important thing is before you even start gaming, I would always say, and this has come up on other podcasts, whether it's, a, whether, whether it's a good thing or bad thing or how to approach it, is, is that first get to know yeah, like, the getting to know them part. Yeah, not um, really well, but I mean, you know, um, I've heard of people sort of, you know, when they recruit people, uh, they sort of invite them around for a session uh, of gaming, which is kind of ridiculous to me because you don't want to jump straight into it like that. You want to sort of go for a coffee with them or something first and, and find out sort of what interests they have outside of role-playing, you know, what influences them in role-playing, what kind of movies they like and stuff, like see whether you're on the same sort of level with that and, mm. you know, then you can sort of connect in that way. I mean, it's kind of, it's it's half, it's and it's also a good opportunity to then realise that someone really doesn't fit, because after all, role-playing games, at least, are, soci- are social um, yeah. events. Yeah, and, that, and they're meant to be a relaxing thing. Yeah, and you, you, don't, you don't want to be stressed out. With each other, then that yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I understand what you guys are saying, but uh, from, again, playing perhaps devil's advocate again, can we look at it like this, that I come from a, a situation where I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and uh, uh, if anybody else grew up uh, out there in the middle of nowhere, sometimes you know that sometimes you you, you are thrown together with people because they're the only people you know mm. in an entire area that have only got the same kind of common kind of interests. Yeah, sometimes uh, you don't have a choice. <laughs> exactly, exactly, which is um, uh, again one of the difficulties with what we do for a, for a hobby. Like Chris said, it's a social thing, and if somebody doesn't quite fit right in with a social group, it can be quite um, uncomfortable to do things with them, especially if their their uh, methods of doing things are, should we say, on the darker side of things, or perhaps on the lighter side of things. Remember that and while we all play the World of Darkness, and this is a World of Darkness podcast, not everybody wants to explore that kind of level of detail, which is what we're going to talk about later, but 
that's one of the big things with the, the kind of games that we're all going to talk about tonight is... Well, I would say it's not just that. It's also sometimes dealing with... Yeah, sometimes because gaming often... The people that are, that are associated in gaming are often, let's just be honest here, can can be considered... You know, at some point, I would say most of us have been considered social outcasts of some level. Agreed. And, and you know, unfortunately, gaming has that um, stigma. And it means that people can get into gaming because they're a social outcast maybe for something else. And so you, know, you band together in one way and you get drawn into other kind of, uh, you could almost say subcultures. And it means that I think also that you can not only have the problem with more dark games, you've got whether people like the light or dark elements. It's just that some people have l- limits or issues in socialising with people. And it's, sometimes it's a question of like, how forgiving are you or your group going to be to, to deal with those problems? Can you deal with them? Or is there a point where you can't deal with them? And how to then approach that issue? Because that's a whole problem. You know, yeah. you, you don't want to, you don't want to upset anyone, but you also don't want to, you know, basically grind through a great, through a game which is going to end up not being fun for anyone at all. So, um, it's hard. It's very difficult. It can be very difficult. It's not always difficult. Generally, it's not difficult. I mean, I suppose, like, if uh, short games, like, I, if I'm trying to gauge people, I usually play short games, because then, if you want to, you can always extend something else out of it. Yeah, one shots are perfect for, for getting a, for testing. Mm. Yeah. And getting a feel for what people like to play. Mm. And the way that they're playing as well. You might, um, you might decide that you wanted to do some, like, really dark, moody, uh, world of darkness, and then everyone might, might have a bit more of a cavalier, swashbuckly attitude, and you go, oh, actually, maybe, I don't know, maybe that would fit better in this system, or even just change the setting a little bit. Mm. So assuming, let's, let's assume that, that the, the obvious result of any recruitment is that you get the perfect gaming group, and you've got, you know, people that communicate, you know, communicate properly, so, you know, people tell you when they're not going to turn up for a session, and you can reorganise things, because, you know, that's another problem, is is organising your gaming group so that they meet up and people actually tell you when they're where they are, is, have have any of you ever had had to deal with uh, an issue where uh, there's been a, a problem with the interaction between the players or the player GM uh, within the gaming group that's meant that you've had to address it up front? And, has that, and what kind of conclusion did you get to with that? Well, uh, I've had uh, literally guys come to me and say, I can't roleplay with X because of Y. And often that can be something that's outside of the game and in uh, a social kind of environment. Yeah. uh, With stuff that's happening in the real world, for want of a better word. Often I find it best just to get two players in the room and say, you've got a problem with him because of this. Just talk amongst yourselves and figure it out. If they can't figure it out, and the hard part, and this is the hard part of being, again, if you're the storyteller, it's the unwritten kind of uh, uh, rule that you're the leader, for want of a better word, of the group, that you have to look at your players and say, okay, then, well, if there's a problem that people cannot overcome, one of them has to go. Because uh, any kind of conflict that can lead to two people just falling out all the time or bickering detracts not only from what you're trying to do, but also from the enjoyment of everybody else sat at that table. 
because that's the other thing that uh, sometimes players come to, to games with a sense of, this is for me. Mm. And, you, and they, they don't really come with the idea that this is for us. Mm. And as soon as you can educate player, players into the idea that this is for us rather than this is me, 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 you know, sometimes, especially when you play in a big group like I've got, so there's some weeks where some guys don't get so much of a look in. But my players come to it with the kind of idea that it's a bit like a TV show where you have a large cast of characters. Some weeks you don't see X, Y, or Z for some unknown reason. But yeah. then that's explored later. So they just have to sit back, wait their turn, enjoy the, 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 the rest of the plot that the rest of the players are going on with and, and, and be part of the story so they're not excluded because they're not there or whatever else is going on. And they're just allowing that to go on. Um, and maturing your players that way is one of the hardest things to get around because, like I say, one of the big things with players is me, me, me. It's about my enjoyment. I want the, 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 the grand diclave or the big chopper or the biggest gun in the book you know um, that's, that's, that's one of the hard things to get players out of that mindset because a lot of us come to it with that idea because a lot of us get into games when we're a lot younger mm. and it is a very and I don't want to say childish because perhaps it's the same thing but an adolescent thing to do that, to want to have the, 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 the kind of fighter character with the hack master plus 12 and lay into the village load of people and kill them all because that's how you roll. That's great. But as you mature, and you, you start getting your players to mature as you go along. Um, yeah. And it's about sometimes some of the things that we're, we're really dealing with is gauging that maturity level between players and where you are as a storyteller. Hmm. James, you have uh, had to... you Well, you've had experiences of, of problematic interactions in a, in a gaming group and how that's been dealt with. Well... We had a, I had a gaming group um, crash and burn, unfortunately, when uh, some, there was a falling out between some of the players, and it did completely destroyed our whole setting. So it's, it's, a de- it's like a big problem if, you, if it goes unchecked. Mm. Um, Is that a, a problem at the table or a problem in...? in- um, a IRL problem. Um, two, of our, two of our players started going out, and then that went very awkwardly for everyone involved because um, one of the one of those people hadn't broken up with their boyfriend and that was very difficult because we all knew the boyfriend as well so that it all like we were playing the game in their house and like ah not pleasant not pleasant for everyone everyone was just on edge all the time and it there's an there's an energy when you're playing a group uh, playing role play in a group you know you've got this kind of feel to the to the session and it was just always, always very nervous, very anxious. We, no one really could settle down. Um, and there was, like, stuff leaked over into the game that there was characters, characters who, like, were not close as characters suddenly became very pally for yeah. no in-game reason. Um, and as, as a role player myself, like, I, I prefer to role play my character as opposed to, uh, play my stats. So I, you know, I don't like it when IRL Goes over into game. Yes, yes. I think for for my part, I've had to. Um, it's really only happened. Difficulties have happened, but it's really happened. The one major time was simply because it's all very complicated, and I don't want to go into the nasty details of it. But it was essentially having to. Uh, it was a new player to the group and didn't fit with the group dynamic. And I, I would think, say that was a problem um, in and out of the actual role play. Yeah. Well because 
um, this person made people uncomfortable in our group outside of roleplay, just when we were talking generally, and also within roleplay, just didn't fit the group at all. Yeah, the, the, um, it was quite clear that the, the character concept was, uh, was influenced by their out-of-character opinions, and so that really still made people feel very uncomfortable in the things that he would say in character. So... You know, and then as it was me as a as a storyteller having to go right. I feel uncomfortable. Well, talk, well, we have to ask and then to... and talk to the rest of the players and go like, are you getting the same vibe? Is it is it me? Am I being too horrible? And you, you don't you want to address the thing in a way that doesn't mean you all come across as a as a prejudiced bastard as well. Mm-hmm. So um, difficult, very difficult. But you know, the only thing you can do sometimes, the best thing you can do is talk about it with everyone. Mm. work out what the problem is and then the, really the best thing is just to be not blunt but direct and go this is an issue it isn't working rather than trying to grip your teeth and get through it because that's not going to be fun yeah sweeping problems under the carpet only makes them worse and ignoring these things just makes them worse and worse and worse and that's when you get players that you do want to start, uh, keep at your table dropping out because they don't want to role play yeah. with bad eggs for one of a better word yeah, and also it's, it's been brave enough to say if you've got players that don't who uh, don't keep communication properly and, and suddenly drop out gaming sessions, it's time to just jump because they're ruining other people's fun, and that's happened um, mm. in a gaming group. And uh, on the note, when you said like with maturity of uh, you know, whether people are there for me, me, me in the Dark Ages game, Dark Ages Vampire game, or something, you'd often get um, I would often sit next to the player whose character and my character had similar in-character philosophies. So whenever there was anything going on in-game that wasn't involving us and we were off-scene, we'd just sit back and just start talking to each other in-character about stuff, which is um, which was always amusing and good fun. And it's great when you've got a gaming group big enough that that's actually feasible. Have we covered everything about, about getting a gaming group together and what issues you can basically get, problems you can get into? I think generally it's always good just new players, meet them, talk to them, have a coffee, you know, talk to them for a good hour or so, tell them what you kind of into wanted to run, what they kind of like, what games they like, find out what your, 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 the things in common you share, the, uh, the cultural keystones to the way the game works, and then from there it should be pretty, it should be pretty clear who's going to work in your gaming group and who isn't, or who you need to go, look, you haven't seen these films, this is what I want to run. I think we should have a, a have a few movie yeah. nights. Once you've watched all this stuff, you will know what we're running. You know, educate people as well in that way. And when I say educate, I don't mean, yo, oh, you need to read all of Lord of the Rings and, and know it inside it's out. Sort of yeah, but then, uh, like you, like you said, that's a, that's a really good idea. Is uh, like you say, a movie night. Come around to my place. We'll have a couple of drinks. This is the kind of stuff I'm thinking about in this scene. This, this is what I'm talking about. You know, because especially if they've seen the movie before, uh, you know, you can talk over movies and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. Or like you draw reference to Lord of the Rings if you, if you want to play a D and D thing. I'm thinking yeah. of doing something like this. Or you go, I don't want to do Lord of the Rings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that works really well. Yeah, which ties into the what we were talking about last time, about how your players can come to you and deliver the information about what they want to do with their players, oh, sorry, as their characters, um, needn't necessarily be a piece of A4 that, or uh, an email that's sent to you that's written down. It's something more of a, this is what I'm thinking, this is, this is what I'm going for. 
rather than a, uh, you know, a, a character biopsy that's like uh, in-depth and, and greatly in detail. It's something yeah. you can't or won't do that for you. And also, you've got to be aware that some players don't have... Um, it's actually... Be aware... I think the other thing is not only be aware of what players want to get out of the game, but also how much time they can devote to the game because mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a difficult balance and, like, it's great when you've got players that have a great character concept and can write uh, and can write lots of information about what their character's like and give you a great concept. You know, like, I have so many storybooks, I will make this character's life hell. <laughs> and that's brilliant. And players have time to, like, email you and blue book you and, and stuff. And even read, read bloody books. Like, they'll borrow the rule books and, and they'll get to know the rules. Now, some players are less interested in the rules, let's be honest. Yep. There's a lot, there's a lot of rules. Unfortunately, World of Darkness, there's only one thing you need to know, which is this, these dots plus these dots, roll them. That's not, thank God for that. Mm. So, I would say don't expect players, I think it's, I think sometimes it's a bit snooty to go, players must know, need to know all the rules inside out. I think that's crap because you don't need to do that to have a good game. No, I agree. Uh, it's, uh, it's partly your responsibility as a storyteller to also educate them in the rules. Yeah, and, you can, they can learn you, as they go. Exactly. Uh, the only person who really needs to r- know the rules inside out, unfortunately, is the storyteller. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't know the rules inside out, your players are going to pick you apart pretty quickly. So, uh, you know. Um, but you you have a, uh, if you ask me, a responsibility as a storyteller for a bunch of things. I was talking about before that you're essentially the, perhaps the leader for that, 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 that kind of troop. That mm-hmm. your players turn to you and look to you for all these different bits and pieces. And often, like you're saying with these social uh, situations, they'll turn to you to be the final arbiter. Which is also the other thing that we should warn players about, that, or our listeners about, that sometimes as, you, as a storyteller you have to be the one to make the tough decision, and you have to be the one to, to really decide what's best for you and your story, and you and your players. Because yeah. uh, sometimes like, you might get like, people like, who have known each other for years fall out and just can't get along anymore. Or somebody's introduced that's new to the group that's just not like, you, like the problem you had, that just doesn't fit in well. Um, and what can you do? And the only thing you can do is really sit down, talk, and decide whether or not it's best that they part company or not. The other thing I was going to say uh, to do with rules in, this, in the games is also players often don't have time to read. Like some of the books are really long, mm. and some books are not as well written as others. Let's be honest. Some are some are quite can be quite difficult to read through their content. And you, as a storyteller, can also do work by creating. You know, crib notes, just create some... If someone goes, I want to kind of play this, I don't have time to read this, but I'd like to know a bit more. You know, there are wikis out there. You can always write up some notes from the books, do some bullet points, and give them and go, this is it. And if you know this, I can fill in the rest of the blanks in game so that you you, you don't... I'm not giving you an information dump, but you know enough how to play that character if you want to play a member of the... Ah, God, what? The Church of Cain, say, if you're playing Dark Ages. Or, okay. or, uh, to know a bit more about the, um, one of the pylons or, uh, ministries in, say, Mage the Awakening. There's a lot of information there, and sometimes players just have jobs and, and children and stuff to do. And, um, there's, you know, they don't have time to read all that information, but they want to play something. I was going to say something related to that. Disappeared in my head. Uh, and also, again, related to the same thing. Something which I make for my games, I really do suggest make cheat sheets, stuff that, that basically say if you spend a willpower point, this is what it do does, or um, 
you know, so you've got some of the information from the game relevant to the player in one place on a sheet with their character sheet because you want something to reference. It makes life easier. Is there anything else to say, Sam, James, on rules and knowledge and how to help players out on that? Uh, well, I personally, um, I have a very short attention span, so if you hand me a book to read, I'll basically not do it or forget to do it. I will read a little bit of what I need to. I don't read too much because too much information will just confuse me. Um, and I sort of, I create characters based on, I want to play somebody with this sort of personality who fits into this sort of archetype. And then I pretty much ask you to uh, put the dots in for me. Mm. Because that's, I'm not trying to make a sort of superhero with fans. You're not trying to optimise <laughs> your character. Yeah, I'm not. So, because um, for me it's more about, you know, sort of character development and story development than, you know, being able to punch things a lot. But punching things a lot is good Yeah, part. that's fun too. <laughs> James? See, going on from what Sam said, like I, like playing playing a character, Sam Sam enjoys actually saying, like, I want to do that. I, I remember when we played, Sam would want to do something, and she would say that's what she was doing. And as the GM, you would interpret that into actions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is really handy for new players. And one of the reasons why I like playing with people who haven't gained much before, because they usually, they usually approach things from a viewpoint of, okay, I'm going to go in here, and I'm going to grab this person by the hair so they can't escape. Well, you know, you're not going to sit there and go, okay, they're not going to go, okay, right, so that's a grapple check, and I could really do with one specialization in hair grabbing. Um, <laughs> you know. Oh, that's a specialization. We need to tell, we need to tell David Hills to put that one in, like, um, <laughs> but we need a specialization, hair pulling. <laughs> Playground bullying. Yeah. It's mostly in the innocence. I've mostly just not read that book for it. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, you don't sit down there, like, as a player, when you first approach something from a character point of view, you don't go, okay, I want to use two points of this and one point of that to achieve this um, Like, this I effect. kind of want to punch them in the face. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, that's... What you're getting at is the, prob- the difference between the player wanting to interact with the setting mm-hmm. and and the game mystic part of it. Yeah. And, Which is yeah. why I think the GM... that That's an amazing point for the GM to step in. Like, when... Um, when Chuck threw a beer bottle across a crowded club, I I chucked it, um, and then we figured out how, like, well, I wanted to throw something, and then we figured out what that would be and how that would work, and then, you know, the, the rules part of it sorted itself out, but in character, the actual action was, you know, we knew we knew what the goal was, mm. what the action was. I think what you really get out there is the whole point of, like, often the best thing is to describe, is describing or saying, saying, because often new players are very... Uh, unsure of how to describe their character's actions, and yeah, it's a, it's a you, you, you need, you've got a new group, you've got new people, and you're new to the game. You, you feel like you're you don't know shit about it, and you feel like a, an idiot. And you all you want to do is I, I want to punch the guy, and it's like to me that's enough because I'll just go cool. You want to punch him? Roll that for me, um, and I'll look at the character sheet. And if there's someone that knows maybe a bit of the rules for something a bit better than I do, I go. What's the best way for them to punch them? Should they use this? And you go, yeah, let them do that. And so we go, I'll oh, spin a willpower point, activate that power, roll the dice. Oh, look, you just punched him through the wall. Brilliant. And then you get back into the story. You go, and so your character, we, you know, 
I, and then I'll, I'll add the flavour to it then after the result. But hopefully in time, the players collaboratively together will understand the rules of their character better to know what they're doing, and also get a feel for the, the flavoursome description. So to begin with, you, you know, the, the storyteller is doing a lot of the work, but over time, that work will be taken off them by the players themselves so they feel confident to take command of the rules and take command of the, of the descriptions. The, the other thing as well is, um, as you as you said, Chris, that's a really good point, that as you move on, to begin with, when you get new players or even old players that come into a new system, that you really give a lot of flavour as to what goes on when they activate these powers and what goes on so they know what what to expect. After a while, do you really need to describe somebody being hit with potence for the nth time? No, not really. We can all just agree that potence is awesome. Mm. Um, and, and uh, you, you, you know, you're smashing people through walls and all the rest of it. And your players can just imagine that and take that for granted. And that takes some of the work off. So as you, as you progress, your, your narrative needs to be less, less um, descriptive in some ways, but more in others. So that's when you start to really push your narrative uh, along your plot lines rather along than uh, great narratives is in, in uh, what goes on in combat sequences because uh, yeah. that, that can lead your players down the wrong idea that you know it's all about combat well you can always add that information back in in the, in the uh, session write up if you do that type of thing which is what I do I retroactively change uh, details if it makes get if the story seems better or if I even forget to give away a clue that's happened to me anyway I think we're, we're cool with that. So let's move on to um, to actual the more gamey parts. Then I say gamey like it's a pheasant we just shot <laughs> um, and we're spitting out the lead. So player choices, limits, and restrictions. So let's be honest. Uh, let, again, we've all played vampire, so we can we can we, let's we may as well use vampire as the kind of the base level setting to to refer to. Okay, vampire the masquerade. You join a group, you're about to play a game, you are making a character, and you've got X number of clans to choose from. It's really difficult. And Vampire Requiem made it, to me, a bit easier, in that there's less clans to choose from, but also made it even more complicated, because they added more factions to join. And there's a lot of combinations there, and when the players may just be interested in going... I want to play like a vampire mystic who 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 has ghouled some antiques dealer and you know has and and enjoys the works of Byron or and Keats and and but and and doesn't watch TV and but and plays like Go and you know there's a lot to, there's so you can have issues where a player can be overwhelmed with the amount of choices uh, before you even get into putting stats on sheet. And so I often, in my games, I set restrictions and limitations. So there'll be restrictions on what bloodlines characters can choose to join. There may be even restrict, and then there'll be or limitations on how high a skill can start at or or a status or something like that. And then there will be like hard restrictions, like this game, all the players are members of the Cardinals, because for me it makes it easier to know why the group is working together. And it also fits into the type of story I want to tell. So do you two kind of take that approach with character generation? And Sam, do you want to tell me, you may have any opinion on how that's worked, both for like changing and for vampire, what you think, how it's worked? Mm. So, 
Because you're running Vampire, um, Vampire the Masquerade, 20th anniversary version, so mm-hmm. you've got a lot of plans to choose from. I have. I have. And a lot of bloodlines as well. Now, and a lot of bloodlines. But you've only got the Sabat and Camarilla to choose from. That's correct. That's correct. Well, and Anarchs, but let's be honest. Um, <laughs> And the Talmahare, if you uh, want to yes, get yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's yeah. not muddy the waters. Let's, let's, uh, let's look at things. Um, for me, if a player comes to me with a really decent writer on the character that they want to play, and it might be a Bali, it might be an Asamite Web of Knives kind of character, that most GMs would be like, <gasps> um, really, you're going to come to me with an Asamite? Oh, okay. But if they come to you with an Asamite that's got a lot of background, a lot of details, a lot of where they want to go in your chronicle, why not? Yeah, 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 obviously. Yeah. Why not? Because uh, uh, the other... You put the effort to go, oh, well, I see what you're doing with your chronicle, but I've got this massively cool idea. I think it'll work. Because normally that's the type of player that's, gonna work, that's willing to make some compromise. Exactly. And the other thing as well is they can educate people about a clan or a bloodline that normally gets stereotyped like hell. So, uh, like, for me, I've got a lot of love for the Asamites. I've really got to chuck that out there again. Um, because they're often missed, they're looked at as like, oh, okay, then, well, all they want to do is go around diabolizing every vampire they see. It's their blood religion. They're just all Arabic nutters. They're all Islamic fundamentalists. It's like they're none of those things. Oh, but, yeah. but, but, but at the same time, they are all of those things. Because that's, that's the thing about the stereotype of the clan, that it's, it's, on one side of the thing, you've got to, you've got to portray a game to your players where you perhaps got to have Brujar, who are angry individuals. Otherwise, what are Brujar? If they're all just nice, calm, philosophical, philosophical people who occasionally just go mental, that, that doesn't really make Brujar kind of like as fiery or as passionate as they should come across. In the same way that I think once you describe the, uh, the Deva uh, clan in um, uh, Vampire the Requiem, not everyone needs to be supermodels. No, no, no. You know, not everybody needs to be, you know, uber uh, appearance-wise. They could be the most ugly person in the world, but creating art that is absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. Look at Van Gogh. Wasn't he, like, ginger? Not not to point the finger at gingers. Also, yeah, they were were a good example of how I think they they improved upon certain elements like the... That's one thing I would say with Vampire Requiem, you don't have that kind of swoony Toreador anymore. You can have them, but they're not um, one of the poor clients. Anyway, carry on, that's a different thing entirely. So do you, so you will say you would, um, you would, you would, you would put restrictions in there, but obviously there's always the exceptional player that somehow adds something amazing to the game. Always, always. I mean, come on. Uh, you don't really need a party made up of a Samadhi, a Gargoyle, a True Brew Jar, and a I don't know what, a daughter of cacophony. You don't need that as a, you don't need that as a storyteller. If you're going to play a game like that, good luck. Good luck. Uh, tell me about it, please. Uh, tell me if it's a success. Um, uh, but, it, you know, you need to be realistic as a storyteller. For your own kind of plot, what, what kind of game are you going to play? play? Sabat Camarilla. Yeah. Okay. If it's if it's Camarilla, you've got to be looking at just the normal seven kind of clans being in the majority across the board, with the occasional blip on the on the political horizon. And we're talking occasional, and we're talking like one, maybe two in your entire chronicle. Because if you just chuck in bloodlines and all sorts of madness all the time, it's just like ah, oh, it just becomes a horrid mess. That's yeah. just like you know, and you're detracting from the system some, somewhat. 
I mean, Requiem can have that, because there's so many bloodlines they've brought out for Requiem, like so many, and I hate half of them, at least. I don't find many of them. Or, when I say hate, I, I don't see any real way to, like, fit them into the type of stories I want to tell, because they, they seem mm. like specific in the stories that you can tell with them. And then, you know, the reason why I do restrictions with, with, um, covenants, that, 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 that player characters are linked to, is because let's, let's look at the crazy example. We've got a, we can have a, a mecha, Carthian, a Ventru Lanka Sanctum, uh, you can have a, and then what, a, a Gangrel Autobrachal, like, could you, you know, technically you can do it, but like, the idea, the, the, the reason for why that collection of vampires of different clans, of different covenants, all in the same coterie, you know, it's a lot of hard work and, and, uh, reasoning for why any of them would want to be involved with each other. It's just like, and that's before you even get to go, oh, well, he's part of this bloodline. It's like, fuck off. It's like, you've got to, you know, I like it when, when, um, the reason creating these limitations and restrictions can help make the setting seem plausible. But those, those, uh, those parts of Vampire of the Requiem really appeal to me that these pre or, uh, preconceived political factions that already exist within your game that people can relate to and have read about and know what's going on roughly in their own mind is great because everything I've ever done with Vampire the Masquerade always has a clan and then a political faction within, the own, within their own city because uh, not, not everybody's in the Camarilla and it's not some like cub jamboree where they're all singing Kumbaya at night you know, there are, there are factions within themselves. In my own game at the minute in Pittsburgh, I've got two different factions that are, that are being run by yeah. two different sisters. It's the Confederacy of Faith and the Union of Hope, Hope and Faith, the respective elders. Now, the group works for the Confederacy. They go around and call themselves Confederates. When I talk about Union members, and I describe other vampires within the city as being Unionists, they know what I'm talking about. But yeah. that's something that I've made up. That's part of the, the narrative that I'm telling. For a Requiem uh, storyteller, that's, that's even easier. You can set these political factions up, and they're all there, laid out in the book that your players can choose from, and so much of the work is done for you. Because yeah. one of the biggest things that I have to do is convince my group to choose a side. <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah, they just want to be members of the Camarilla, they didn't want to choose a side within it. No, 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 they wanted to choose a side, but they couldn't decide amongst oh, themselves right, yeah. who the better option was. Oh, and the, right. And the group was polarising at one point, um, but that, 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 that was changed by different people dropping out and new people coming in. Anyway, that, that, that's, that's a, uh, an example of something that I've done, uh, but I've, something that I've always done within Vampire, because... The political factions, like you talk about these games being social games and the Camarillas being a homogenous mass, it's not that simple. And there being some kind of division between, like, Anarchs and Ancilla or Harpies or whatever you want to call them. Now, within the Anarchs, why should the Anarchs be a, a homogenous mass of riotous vampires that are just like, oh, we're all in it together? No, 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 no. You can imagine there are cults of personality and individuals yeah. within that pulling that, that faction in all, all sorts of different ways. So, and that's, that's your job in Masquerade, laid out for you, but in Requiem, it's kind of half done for you. And yeah. that, that's, a, that, that, that's something for me that I, when I went to Requiem and read it with new eyes, I was like, well, I, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. It's laid out straight for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, as I said, you need to kind of like sometimes push your group to, to sort of, you need to restrict some of these choices so that the, mm. the, the coterie that they form or, or cabal or whatever 
or um, or what, what's the word I'm looking for? Or uh, pack, you know, kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Makes sense the 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 city setting you're running. James, Sam, any points you want to make on that? Uh, James, uh, well, or? I was I was going to talk about uh, changeling actually. Changeling yeah. the lost. Um, it was funny because when we played, um, I I really wanted to play a spring courtier. Mm. Um, and basically everyone else wanted to be in the autumn court. Well, I kind of nudged them towards it. Completely by coincidence as well, they were all really into it. Mm. And, uh, but I still wanted to be in spring, uh, which was actually, I think it kind of worked in my favour in the end because it worked with my story arc for my character. She sort of broke away from the others. She still sort of was within the group, but had a lot of conflicting emotions about uh, you know, who she had loyalty to yeah. and who she got along with. And that can kind of work, but sometimes it can sort of backfire if you're the only one who doesn't have anything in common yeah. with the rest of the group. So that's something to watch out for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... As far as character creation goes, I've actually had a lot of fun with characters who have been created for me by GMs. Mm. Um, which means that you are basically taking all of their, um, all of their options off the table. Um, which I, yeah, which I understand is um, maybe kind of a counter, counter to what we've been saying. But uh, one of the things I like about that is that the character ends up being what you define them as is how you play them, which means that I was I was given a, um, one of my characters that I enjoyed, I was given a history um, of how I'd got to the point that I was um, and what my character's profession was and I got with my character sheet. And then I was just told to go from there and... You know, well, how I'd how I'd got to the point that the story started out as well, how all the characters have met, um, and that was that was really good fun. And I have created characters for people up to this point, especially with a lot of the one shots I'm doing. If you're if you're sitting down to very quickly knock out of a game with a couple of people, you want to you want to have it go well, actually get to the gameplay quite quickly. Um, mm. Maybe maybe this is me coming from a video game's perspective, um, having everything generated beforehand. Uh, but it does mean that you can, if you're creating characters, it also means that you can actually make sure everyone is rooted in the storyline as well. Yes. And development is always something a character can control. The, the GM who uh, gave me my character, the storyteller, um, they expected me to specialise in spirits, and instead I spent a lot of... Uh, well, I mean, this is old mage. Um, okay. I ended up doing a lot of work with correspondence, mm. um, which took him completely by surprise, but it with the stuff that I've been doing in game, it made a lot of sense, and you know I I had an absolutely amazing time, and I still yeah it it was one of the things that cemented Mage as a uh, as the World of Darkness game I would always want to play again, but I haven't quite had the chance to get around to. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, and I think working off that James, what you're saying about um the kind of like the com- that kind of like uh, computer game console game approach to group design, you know, character design, then brings us on to our next topic, really, which is the idea of a group template. So, mm. one book which I have consistently seen called a bad or not very useful Vampire the Requiem book was Coteries. And I found that very weird, because I think it's an amazing book for starting out in Vampire, and actually starting out in, in any World of Darkness game, uh, because I think some of the ideas there can still be applicable. So, when you go through it, it t- it's obviously telling you about how coteries get together and work together and how they're influenced by their sires and elders and so forth. 
And of course it gives you, the, it talks about the classic, oh, you're all members of different clans' covenants. But then it goes and looks at each covenant separately and the types of coteries that form. And these coteries often form to fulfill a particular task. And so there's the classic kind of Carthian um, paranormal investigation cleanup crew. And uh, and then you get other examples, like, you know, you've got the classic kind of, like, Circle of the Crone, uh, Cult of whatever, and they all work together towards that particular, um, working with those particular spirits and those particular methodologies and trying to protect their way of, of working magic. Or the Autodrical Research Group, which I would I would love to run that one as a game. You know, basically, it wouldn't involve much combat. It'd be basically trying to get players to write weird pseudo-scientific madness. That'd be brilliant. And then have a, I would love to run a session where players are like presenting their research work, like at a symposium. As you can see here, I performed uh, surgery on this uh, ghoul, and uh, I extended his bones, and uh, it worked rather well. The subject is now dead, however, and you know that kind of weirdness. But I think group templates are great because again, they focus the group of players on what the story is about and what type of character they should possibly be making. And this is something that, as we said with, um, in the interview for Iron Kingdoms with Simon Berman, that in that book, again, it has adventuring companies, like you're a group of pirates, or you're mercenaries, or you're, uh, um, uh, you're witch hunters, or something like that. And I think, um, the idea of a group template is very, um, useful and quite powerful tool. Has anyone ever made use of that in their games? I don't know why maybe that in our games. I guess in 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 Vampire Sam we've done that for like two members of the Carthians to help them with an election, and what in Changeling you were members of the Autumn Court, and that was pretty much it. So we had less of a group template for that one. So you know I've used it used it to a, a greater or lesser degree to pick on what the story is I'm telling. Well, for uh, the next part of my Vampire the Masquerade thing, I'm going to be running a Sabbat campaign. Huh? And uh, my players have come to me and said, okay, then, well, how are we going to come up with this idea that we're a pack? And I said, well, that's a good idea, because what you guys need to do is sit down as a group and make your characters that are built around your common ideal of what kind of a pack you're going to be. You know? Are you going to be nomadic? Are you going to be uh, a city, you know, a, a, a coven? Are you going to be, you know, warlike? Are you going to be more political? Are you going to be, what kind of, you know, these, these, these are the kind of things that players need to come at, rather than players doing their things on their own, coming to, with an idea that half the group come to the idea where we want to be a coven, and the other half of the pack, uh, group come with it, we want to be nomadic, nomadic vampires. How do you then get all those people working together? If you come at it with an idea with a kind of group session before you start, and just have a brief chat about what you want to do, like your ideas about what what, what you want to go on with uh, as a character, uh, say if you want to run a uh, the pack priest or the pack leader, you need to be coming at it so you don't have two or three people coming to you saying, I want to be the pack leader, so nobody's disappointed, where everybody knows straight up front that, you know, this is what we're going to do with this thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, uh, I think there's a, in other World of Darkness games, there's, there's the tools there to help do that. And actually, there's some games that actually need you to do that. So, Mage the Awakening, Sanctum and Sigil, has the thing about how you, as a group of players, have to think about, A, what's your Sanctum, and how it looks and works, and what things you play hearts need in their Sanctum. Again, where it is in the city and so forth. And you also have to work out your sigil, which is kind of like your magical calling card and your emblem of your group, and and what it would look like based upon 
on uh, the magical talents of the group. Geist, of course, absolutely relies on you having a group template because you have to actually come up with a um, what's it called? Uh, with a um, I want to say a mythology or at least you know what the philosophy of how they approach death is and how it reflects their group. And of course, werewolf is quite important in this because, like, I think werewolf the forsaken more than uh, apocalypse because, like. Wealth the Forsaken is about looking after your territory. You've got a little patch of territory. Where is it? What type of place do you live together? Do you all live together? What spirits are in your area? Who's your pack totem? And, you know, those are part of kind of, they're all parts of the group template, uh, that are, though they're explicit options within the game, but I, there are other options, obviously, that aren't part of the game which can be given. James, have you seen this in any games? Again, like, you've got your kind of viewpoint coming from computer games. Oh man, I'm terribly sorry that I've just thrown thrown a blank. That's uh, right. Oh my god. Um, Don't worry about. It. I mean, I mean, I'm trying to think of other games that kind of give um, that kind of enforcement over group template. Oh um, well, I mean, yeah, group templates, right? So I mean, heck, new new Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Um, that actually gives you roles. As in, you have a controller who manages the battlefield, you have a leader who does healing uh, and party support, you have DPS or strikers. Um, but it, it's like when we were playing in, uh, in Secret World and you were, oh, yes. you were meant to, like, we were trying to sign up for um, one of the dungeons and you didn't have any particular definition of the roles. You still, you still got on and did it. Um, ooh, what, any, do I know any, um, I mean, a lot of a lot of games, the the roles are kind of defined informally by the players. You get people saying, like, I want to be a I want to be a social uh, I want to be a socializer, or I want to be a combat bunny. Um, mm. But I mean, this is this is I guess another thing that uh, pre pre made party or pre made characters have as quite an advantage. Now, our GM knew that we had the skills to deal with the challenges he wanted to put in front of us. Yeah. You know, we were he'd he'd set us in a particular time period. Unfortunately, I cannot remember what the time period was. Um, but this was pre pre computers, so you know we might have come at it and gone, ah, computers, computers will be important. So I will be technologically savvy, and then it might have turned out that technologically savvy is almost redundant because everything runs on. You hit. You've just hit on a, upon an important thing when you said about having the right skills because that's that's what happened was a problem in my Exalted game. Because Heather's character, uh, she made a... She wanted to play kind of like a, a, a shaman who could speak to spirits and do certain things. And Exalted is a very complicated... Second, Exalted second edition, okay? It's quite complicated with the charms. And a poor choice of charms can leave your character quite incapable of doing what you wanted to do. Yeah, compared to other players as well. Yeah. Especially if you've got one player who actually knows absolutely the game inside out and optimizes the character perfectly, yeah. and then that means either you've, you've got to, you've got to have two things in here. Either a you've got to be as a storyteller, you've got to pre you've got to nudge players to certain choices so that everything works with the right synergy, yet still they have choices, or you make the character yourself for everyone based upon what they want to play, so you you, you definitely ensure if it works together, or the other thing is, um, you know, if something's not working, just fess up and just retroactively change something. If someone, someone's 
powers are just not working for them, it's not giving them the fun they want, fuck it, just move some dots around. And it'll make them happier, and it'll make the game better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's, that's one of the things you've always got to take into account with new players as well, that their perception of what they want to do with things at the beginning can often be quite different to what they're doing at the end. And they'll always have redundant dots on their sheet that really... Are you going to punish them as a storyteller uh, for their ignorance of the uh, the skill set needed for the game, or the, or their knowledge of the rules? You know, mm. not really. You know, because you've got to let uh, a certain amount of stuff like lie. I mean, I'm a big believer as well in uh, not try- having too many dice rolls. I don't know how you guys feel about this. Well, yeah. Yeah. That if a, if a player's got like a strength five and a potent to five. Yeah, you don't need to roll. No, come on, come on. Yeah, your player will be disappointed if they then roll eight ones, because you know, yeah. that's 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 the rules biting back. And is there any need to do that apart from in say combat situations or life and death situations or situations where you really think that it's uh, a, a group member is about to do something stupid? It can be a signal to your players that you know you're doing something stupid, fellas. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Always with these things. That, um, Balancing all this stuff is, is difficult because you're as a storyteller you've got a lot on your plate. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we're cool on group template there, so we can move on to some more interesting. Uh, that's more interesting, some different stuff now. We'll address some more specific things. So, player von Badass, cousin of Count von Badass or Baron von Badass, and his ugly friends. Uh, so, okay, so how do I put this? So, a, a Baron von Badass or Count von Badass uh, is a term I've taken from uh, uh, Fear the Boot uh, podcast, which is um. Well, it basically is a, is a NPC who, uh, the storyteller basically is kind of living vicariously through. So they don't want that character to die. He's just so fucking good. He don't, he, 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 he's like, if I was to choose a character from literature, if you've ever read Chunko, he's the devore of Chunko. He, he has always got a backup plan. He's always got an escape shoot. He, everything is planned. It's all part of the plan. It's that kind of coolness. And now, obviously... He's more Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you don't want that because that's crap. Now, obviously, you get the player version of that, where, you know, the player wants to have um, the best possible character possible, uh, they don't want to die, and or they go for, like, uh, they play a very Mary Sue, Marty Sue kind of character, uh, who is pretty much every worst stereotype mashed together, or... Again, they're living vicariously through to get their shits and giggles out of it. And, of course, that leads on to the things about, like, archetypes versus stereotypes and character creation. So, how do we deal with these type of things? Like, you know, you can get players that know the game so well that they can make, they can actually make, they, they may be looking at approaching the game in, the, in a way that isn't fun for everyone else. So, what do you do in that scenario? Well, I think that, um, because, you know, everyone in the group generally enjoys role-playing, uh, it might be assumed that they're all extroverts, which won't always be the case. So mm. some players will prefer to take centre stage with a character, and will be have to take a back seat and follow a sort of group leader or more prominent character. Um, and those preferences can sort of vary from game to game, so you might want to play like a lead character in Vampire, but in Mage you might want to step back and let someone else take the lead. So depending on how you feel about the source material. Okay. So, you know, I don't think it's always everyone vying for attention in one group. So it can be a big group of extroverts, um, as you've got touched on before with 
everyone trying to get attention all the time, but I don't think that's always the case. No, it's not always the case. Okay. Man, I guess uh, if if you have someone who's trying to game the system, make it all... I mean, I, I've been in a game where the GM actually made it all about one of the players. Ooh. Which, that was a very strange situation. Um, he he basically had himself a, uh, a get-out-of-trouble-free card, um, and then everyone else just had to deal with this guy. Like, he, he would turn up and um, he was infamous for giving people looks, and the player would go... I give a guy a look that says, if you come here, I'm going to beat you up, and you're going to get killed. Um, so you should just give me all of your money straight away. And Jim would be like, okay, sure. And I got so fed up of it, I was like, can you do that look for me? I'm not entirely sure how that would work. Um, and after after doing that every time he tried to do one of these looks, uh, the GM eventually said, you know what, your character doesn't actually have any skills in communication, you probably can't t- communicate telepathically. And it's like, good. Awesome. Um, but, yeah, you do, you do get, you do get players who run off on. Um, but then, uh, sorry, look at, uh, looking at things uh, from another point of view, though, it, sometimes you get players who come to you that give you the most amount of information. Hmm. And, they can be sometimes uh, like the group leader, for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, it, if they're giving you week after week stuff to bounce off, stuff narratives mm-hmm. to, uh, to, uh, to to come up with, so it's constantly, it feels constantly about them. For the wallflowers in the group, I would say, well, why are you involved in a in a social game, which is what you are doing when you're role playing? It's social. When you're going to sit there and say nothing when it's important to say things to get across what you're doing or what you want. Yeah. Um, if you say nothing, then, yeah, that's a massive problem. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nothing but, at all. That, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but there's always those kind of players that you say, like, I'm, I'm sure you've had this, everybody's had this at the game table, where they're like, how's it going for you? It's great. You got anything to say about the campaign? Not really. Are you enjoying it? Oh, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to see in it? Not really. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, where do you see your character in the next ten nights? In a club? Yeah. <laughs> All right, okay. I guess um, one thing to do, you do get those you do get people who are quieter. And like when I when I join a new gaming group, I'm usually very quiet. Uh, once I've been playing for a while, you pretty much can't stop me. But I always try and I mean, even when I'm playing or when I'm GMing, I try and put situations in, even when they may be not planned, that would. Uh, they fit a certain character's skill sets. So if there is a social bunny who is um, who's guarding a place, uh, no, sorry, uh, if there is a, um, a guard on a castle or something that they need to get past or they need to get into a club, have someone have a social encounter where really the person who's been sitting back has to step up and do it. Mm. It's not a combat environment. You go like, okay, this is a thing. Do something. You know, it's not... This is not a situation that our that the combat uh, the combat junkie who's been dominating the session can actually just bludgeon his way through because you know this is a this is Elysium. You don't want to go in there and like kill the sheriff in front of the prince. That's generally considered a bit bad form. <laughs> I think um, on the same on the same vein as that, James. I have played when I get to play. Well, um, so I've played in. Uh, so Chris ran. Um, Hunter for us, and that was good, but he would get sidetracked, so he had played in, like, you know, 
Changeling, and then we went on, to, and that was like for a very long time. Then we played this one-shot hunter, and so obviously I was already comfortable with the gaming group. It's just that I was on the other side of the dice this time around. I was playing, and Jesus Christ, did I have to check myself so that I wasn't talking too much because I could have said fucking everything. I could be like, I'm going to do this, and I've got this brilliant idea, and I describe everything, and my guy's not amazing, but he's going to do this, and it's fun to just role-play out. But I didn't do that, because that's shitty. So, what I would do instead was, A, I would ensure that Chris was always not getting sidetracked. It was like, what are we doing now, Chris? It was like, yeah, can we do... We're meant to be doing this, aren't we? It was like, getting back on the track of what Celie was, rather than talking to just what off-topic all the time. Yeah. Or, it would be me talking in character to one of the other players who hadn't had much screen time yet, and I would be like, so, uh, what do you think of the mission right now? It's uh, pretty bad, it's like, okay, I need, and so I, I did kind of take the, the role of leader for the group, that was mainly to, like, get people to do things, so it'd be like, I'm on point, I need you up on the roof, and it'd be like, is that right? And then, so I'd actually go, yeah, roger that, and I was like, finally, some bloody roleplay going on. And I think that's a, that's something you can do as a storyteller, is identify the player that you can, you can go, hey, can you, can you do this for me? Like, get the other players to, like, you know, talk, yeah. talk to them and get them to do stuff. I don't care what you do, what you get them to do, just sort of doing something. Get them involved in your plotline, even. And well, you're basically deputising someone. Yeah, it's deputise someone. Someone, <laughs> someone. And someone might know the rules for something far better than you, so if they, if they can flick it up quicker, then, yeah, fine, get to look at it. I think these issues can sort of arise when, uh, um, obviously this is less of things like one shot because you're playing sort of characters and you're expendable in that kind of way. Um, if you're playing a long campaign and you don't really, like players who don't know their characters very well or who aren't invested in their characters almost, like so mm. if you as a GM say to them, Oh, so, uh, what have you been doing in the time between, like, last time and when you meet up with the group again and you go and do a mission? Mm-hmm. And they're like, I don't know, it's like, well, what does your character do in your spare time? Like, have you just been sitting around waiting for the boat to make it? Yeah, I, I don't know, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Getting alone in the dark. <laughs> yeah, but the, this, is the, this is exactly the point, though, that you do get players like that, and then you get other players that also come to you that, like you say, like, like yourself, Chris, that just go, and I've been doing bah, bah. two hours later, the talking stops. You know, uh, it's but it's great. It's, it's, it's great to get a mix of people like that, the deputising your, your extroverts and to get the, the introverts to, to do things. It's the best way forward. But sometimes people still sit back and they still sit there. But if they're, if they're turning up week to week and one of you, what can you do? Because you can only, you can only yeah, do so much for people like that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you know. Um, so back to, so I think that kind of covers like, um, I don't know what it covers actually on this point. <laughs> um, again, I think it's just like characters, or players and their approaches to the game. Um, so what would you say, so when I say, so then people that are too, that treat their characters too preciously, um, and are trying to be too badass, mm. I think the whole point is, I think you get the approach that some people are like, oh, my character can do fucking everything, and he's not going to die, he's a vampire, I think, is, I think, always to reinforce the idea that there are consequences. Yes. If their player, if their character is about to go, go, well, I don't give a damn, it's just the police, you know, make their life trouble. Like, if you can't make their character's life trouble for the choice they've done in that session, you know, 
don't forget about it. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're playing World of Darts games. There are investigators, private eyes, family members who, who, who wonder where their wayward son has gone, who's now become one of the undead. Oh, hold on, can we stop there? Momentary pause for a rant. Players that make characters that have no bloody family members or love interest or well, friends, they're just, they're just someone on their own and care about nothing. I mean, I don't care. They can, it's sort of make a character that even has, like, a pet. It gives me something to attack. Alright? I, because if they're like that, it means their character is not part of the world and has nothing to, has no reason to be engaged with it other than their own egotistical kind of need for power. Alright? Mm. Players need to have, the character needs to have some realistic link to the world and, you know, the idea that, oh well, the, the other family's dead and uh, they don't have any siblings and, uh, and, uh, that's it. And it's like, no! Come on! Because if that was the case, then, you know, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's just, it's dumb. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it can sort of happen. Yeah, of course it can imagine happen. Imagine if all your players felt that way about their character. And all these characters have no family and no friends and just stalk around at night. And I think, alone well, I think it's important, <laughs> you need to have those real world connections, especially like, okay, your character could have have a love interest or, or family who are also supernatural creatures, like werewolf that can happen, or a mage, or in any of them. But, I mean, for me, it's maybe a different thing, but that's a different issue entirely, maybe. But you need sometimes to ensure that the character has these mundane connections, because you want to, in the story, show how different your character's world is to that person's world. And so for the, for the player, you can reinforce how being a monster makes their life different and difficult and endangers people. Um, is that cool with everyone? Is that a good is that a good side rant? Anyone want to add anything to that rant? Um, I actually. Oh, Jane. Your character is they need some vulnerability. Yes. In in whichever sense, you know, it doesn't have to be emotional vulnerability or physical vulnerability, but it should be something. What allergic to nuts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you like, if that's your poison, yeah. I'm a mage. I've got life magic, but I'm still allergic to nuts. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, I, I know what you're saying, though, that, um, you know, you, you might be the most uh, uber-badass, um, you know, uh, uh, fighting kind of character going. Uh, in Exalted, you know, you're talking uh, uh, Dawncast uh, in Battle yeah, the Masquerade. Yeah, you, can, you can just make characters that just, like, touch things and they explode into red mist. Yes. If you then put your that character in a situation where, like, right, now you're in Elysium, and there's this... Uh, uh, there's a ghoul of another vampire who's, uh, I don't know, uh, resembles your long-lost sister, uh, you know, do you then start forming an emotional attachment to that? Because are you totally devoid of, in, uh, you know, any feelings? Oh, about I hate, yeah. Yeah, and they're like, uh, nah, nah, I'm not interested in that. And you're like, oh, what, oh, okay. Well, there's a brilliant plot hook that you could get somebody interested in and just nudge them, keep nudging them in the right direction. If you need to, beat them over the head with it. Because... Um, <sighs> it's always disappointing when you get characters like that because they're so two-dimensional and so uh, difficult to do anything with apart from what, what they're specialised in. And if they do that, they're just awesome. Oh, great. <laughs> great. But what else is new for the group at all? You know, and uh, the, 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 that skew of characters, if you get a bunch of uh, people making a highly skewed characters, that's, the, that's the, 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 the downside of it, isn't it? You get people that are just two-dimensional. Walking attributes. 
a bit like Power Rangers or something. I'm the I'm the Green Ranger because I can do life magic like this. La, I'm the Red Ranger. Uh, I don't diss Power Rangers, man. Actually, it, it, there were one or two seasons that were ultra dark. Actually, they're renowned for being ultra dark. I would say. I would say actually, people should look into that. They're quite quite get quite gritty in places. In fact, well, one series includes a certain actor that appears in uh, who does the mocap for Virgil from Devil May Cry. Uh-huh. So, random note there. Anyway, James? <laughs> yes? Uh, you were going to oh, say? Yeah. Um, after, after talking about a character with a real connection to the, like, the normal world, it's, it's made me think that'd be, a, that'd be an amazing character to play. Someone who's, they maybe worked night shifts, doing some, maybe a security job or something, and they're still living with their family. They Ooh. actually sleep in the basement, you know, the basement room of whatever house they're in. And, you know, the family, maybe the family doesn't even know. Yeah. You know, someone who they've like they've been turned into a vampire, and they are trying to keep as human as possible. They are actually trying to keep their life going and their friendships, and then they have these other commitments. And for all the other, because being a vampire in World of Darkness, lots of the characters that is everything that means anything to them. They are a vampire, and their whole life revolves around it. To have a character who, being a vampire, is actually kind of an inconvenience. It's just another thing they have to deal with. That yeah. like, I, I don't think I've actually seen anyone play vampire in that way. Um, well, that life's complete inconvenience to them. That that really the, being a vampire hasn't become their whole freaking world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think yeah, I think um, I think that's the thing. Like, I think um, in I think it's important that you can play a character that that you can reinforce that. Like, say you you playing say Tremere or uh, Crone, and they're amazing at like some sort of blood sorcery. The reason you could argue that they're great at that thing is, is the distraction from why their life is so pretty shit right now. Like, mm. being a vampire has been crap. So you've distracted yourself with things that, like, that you only got access to because you're a vampire. <laughs> and it's, and it could, it's the only way to, like, numb the pain of the, the, of the, the rep film. And that's the whole point of Vampire the Rep film. You're trying to find new ways to numb the pain to what you do. Which brings me on to, we're gonna pause a minute on the, uh, on, on the, the show. Because um, we, we got a email from ages ago from Alakov, uh, asked, and I got asked this question by Dan, who uh, was at the University of Warwick with me, and it's about how to like get the sense of scale in a game. And so the question that Alakov asked was, I think you should cover how to run elders in Requiem like elders. It seems that like it's fairly common for people to wonder, hey, when they wake up with blood potency one, why are they just killed, or at least demoted to neonate stages? I know I've wrestled with this issue. How are they all relevant? Um, how are they at all relevant between the immense culture shock and staggering lack of power? And this comes to what we're talking about now with characters being how they're connected to the world, right? An elder goes from having blood potency seven and disciplines canoeist ass to back to blood potency one. You think oh, that's a bit shitty, right? It's not. That's not amazing. But the point is, an elder is going to wake up with connections. Now, in the Invictus, they have uh, dynastic houses, so as one elder sleeps, another one wakes up. So when they wake up, they wake up to power. Everything's in place already for them. The Carthians, they wake up elders who they who were part of the movement, and they wake them up, and they're part of the Carthian movement. And the Carthian movement goes, hey, you're part of the Carthians, we'll help you out, we want your knowledge and expertise. Elders wake up with all the disciplines they know, just back to the limitations of level 5. And all their skills, and all their knowledge along with everything that the Fog of Eternity has done to them. 
So my point is that elders will wake up and be like, actually, I've got all this expertise, and people won't kill them because they know stuff and know how to do stuff that may have been forgotten. Like, if you're Circle of the Crone or Lancaster Sanctum or Autodrockle, they've got access to abilities that are just crazy. Like, an elder doesn't suddenly forget all his coils. You can't, actually. Unlearning coils. You can't unlearn all your Thaven sorcery and Kruak. And you can't lose all your knowledge of, say, the Rondies, which came out in blood sorcery. They were another form of blood magic. And you don't lose all your, like, access to, um, alchemy. Now, related to this, how would you run because this goes to what dancing is, how would you run a game that's got a very big scale, like Elders, and yet retain that sense of scale? And for me, the way you retain the sense of scale for Elders, like, you're commanding the entire groups of vampires to hunt down people for the blood hunt, and there's another Elder in the city who you want assassinated, and you're, com- you, you're influencing the entire, like, corporations. And this is true for Masquerade, right, Steve? You've got yeah. Elders that command monumental amounts of power. How do you yeah. reinforce that level of scale? You have to then dial it back a bit. Maybe your Elder collects Swarovski crystal animal ornaments and he's looking for one particular one that's missing. Or they go to the ballet every year to the same ballet because they love it. Or they actually still have mortal family and they watch them from a distance. Mm, mm. Or or they actually, you know, because we're playing the world of darkness and magical shit happens, a loved one has somehow been reincarnated. What's the weirdness of that? Or maybe a loved one has become an immortal being in a different way, because World of Darkness Immortals offers different ways to be immortals. And it usually seems to go, you are an elder, you have massive amounts of power, but all this power means nothing when one of the few remnants of your mortal bloodline has just died. And for all the power you command, it means nothing when that person dies. And now there's only one person left. What do you do? one lonely child in a in a foster home. What do you do? And I think that's how you should approach vampire elders. You've got all this massive amounts of power, but you have to look at the to to, to get a sense of that space, you have to look at the scenarios where that power means nothing. And to yeah. what sense will that elder go to influence something which is which is very difficult when they can when they could literally have twenty vampires killed in a night. Well, one of the things that's a bit easier in Requiem, like you said, is the blood potency. Uh, elders get a bit weaker with, uh, the, the longer they're out of action. That doesn't really happen in Masquerade. But what they can be is like uh, out of touch with the current political scene. Um, now, I've always had a look at elders, and like you've just touched upon uh, that, looking at their mortal families from afar. <laughs> for like, for, like uh, most people, I think even if you went to your parents and said, I am this most horrendous thing, your parents would be most forgiving and most accepting of you, no matter what you said to them. I'm a werewolf, I'm a vampire, I'm a, I'm a ghost, I'm a whatever. Yeah? yeah. Your family then is in on the secret. And then as you go, if you're a vampire, your parents grow old and die, your, your siblings grow old and die, your family knows about the secret about Uncle Steve, yeah? And well, it's like Dark Shadows, isn't yeah, it? Or, yeah, exactly. Or um, being human, even. Exactly. Now, why would they not be just as concerned about these people? Because these people might be intrinsic in how they run their lives. That You know, that the family always gathers around to look after him because he's got issues. He's a good boy, really. Or, you know, issues of a werewolf. Yeah, well, yeah, but how many families would then say, okay, then well, what we do is we lock him up. Well, yeah, like in being, being human, they lock him up every night in, in some uber reinforced vault underneath the ground, you know, that the entire family knows about, but, you know, 
you know, because his lycanthropy is looked on as a curse rather than, a, you know, perhaps in Werewolf the Apocalypse, it's looked on as a, a kind of blessing. Yeah, I think um, I think the the point is that if you're going to run elders of any setting, you've got to have a way to 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 um, reinforce yep. how far they how distant they've become from their what their mortal life was. So, like in Mage, you know, you have the ability to reshape reality, but again, it means nothing when another when a family member dies or or something really horrific happens. And then and then for Mage, the question is hubris. How far are you willing to go to, to reshape reality and incur paradox and so forth in order to make things better? I mean, mm-hmm. the ability to re- rewrite time, for God's sake. How far are you willing to go? And those stories are far more interesting than chasing down some ludicrous magical item because you're fighting against the, the, uh, you know, against the seers of the throne. Werewolf, even more so, because werewolves will protect family. Because they're kinfolk, and they're the very people they have to breed with to create new wells and ensure their kind survives. Mm. Changing is even weirder because you've got culture shock. And of course, how do you, how do you reinforce in changing that you're becoming weird? Yeah, but in changing, don't you have those things like oh, what they call uh, fetches? I was reading changing yeah, the other night. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what? So your 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 family doesn't even know you've gone. Yeah. And, yeah, that's but, a whoa! But even weird as this is, it, as your changes becomes more powerful and weird, they become more and more like the true fate. So the whole thing that you're going to reflect how you're, the way to get that across is how you reflect your character interacts with mortals and their family or anything like that, and how they interact with the true fate. Because as they get more powerful, the true fate are going to see them as an equal rather than as one of their slaves. Mm-hmm. And that's weird. And the true fate is creepy anyway. And have I missed a game? Oh, well, Promethean. I mean, Promethean's obviously very clear, because Promethean's possibly one, the one game that's very clear that as you go up in power level, because the whole point of Promethean is you're, you're working towards the goal of becoming mortal. Though, to reinforce for Promethean, my idea of an interesting thing you could do was to reinforce how, how they're a monster compared to the real world, the mortal world, is what if you meet a person who recognises you because you have the face of a dead of the of the dead person that they used to know? Because Prometheans are made from different body parts, so you look like a person they, that died to make you, and that's really weird. Then, um, and of course, Hunter. Well, Hunter's basically supernatural, so you know, oh, Sammy boy, we've always been hunters. Is that <laughs> right, James? Oh man, yeah. Um... So. I think that covers. I think that covers that. And if I go back to the show notes now, because we've gone on a wild tangent here, but I hope people have enjoyed that. We've talked about. We've, I think we've covered players that are trying to play badasses, archetypes, and stereotypes. I think the point about that is sometimes it's easy for easy for new players to accept. You know, new players, new new role players are new to the game. Stereotypes are great because it allows them to immediately get into the gameplay and know what they're playing. Whereas ultimately, people that are already aware of the game. You should approach the idea of archetypes where they're not the stereotypical mecha, but they work to a particular archetype of mecha. Um, so that's like saying you're the mystic so scholar, you're not the you're, you're the mystic scholar. You're not, um, but you're not Eric Draven, for example, or something like that. So yeah, you know what you're getting. Okay, I think we covered a point here numerous times, which was storyteller versus character uh, generation. I think, James, you covered that a lot. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I think we're going to get, we're going to now dice with the, uh, the this is my measure to take up the final third, and this is, as, it seems like a dark thing podcast going on for ages, but I don't care. 
is dealing with the moral issues, dealing with difficult subject material, and and players being uncomfortable with it. Oh, I don't like that. So this includes topics such as <clears throat> torture, murder, rape, and violence, and characters con- uh, control uh, wanting to influence other characters. Uh, dealing with, uh, say, smut, and I want I say smut, but obviously romantic relationships, um, and between either player characters and non-player characters, or player characters and player characters, and, uh, yeah, um, what's the first thing you can say? Know where the line is in the sand with your players. Yeah, well, um, I think, uh, well, first of all, I'm going to say that I pretty much have no problem playing problematic themes myself, just to sort of reckon. Um, I actually, one of my main characters is an elite assassin sort of character who has been tortured, uh, tortures on pretty much a daily basis. Um, I have no problem with kind of violence and gore, horror type role play. Um, but I think the first step um, is to kind of find out what your players are comfortable with. Um, this is the world of darkness and the dark issues are going to be involved somehow. Um, it's important not to assume that everyone is going to be okay with every controversial subject. So there are given, like if you're playing vampires, murder is going to be a main theme. Um, but I think it's always worth talking things over with the players first, because uh, role-playing is a class of effort, and uh, you shouldn't force problematic themes onto your players without fair warning, because it's just common courtesy. Um, once this is out of the way, I think you might also want to consider your reasons for including certain plot points, like, you know, figuring out what's necessary and makes sense, and, you know, potentially triggering situations. Oh, so this Such is a classic. rape shouldn't be thrown out there just for the shock factor. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, I mean, that's true of literature anyway, yeah. of books. You only have to look at, like, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for that. And this has occurred in uh, a recent Fear the Boot episode. They were talking about the same issues of, like, torture and playing dark characters and how players are uncomfortable with playing dark characters. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's a given. If you're going to be playing World of Darkness, people are happy with playing something that isn't quite the good guy. Because, yeah. come on. Well, I, you would be surprised the amount of times I've played vampire with people and they've been like, yeah, you know, this guy's the baddie and we're going to stop him. It's like, it's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not how it works. You know, this guy is a baddie and we are a group of baddies just who happen to be against them. You know, it's, it's not, we're not particularly with much moral high ground. Yeah. You just want, you just want that we will turn out on top when everything falls down. Uh, I, I mean, like to call that the angel Angel. Although I am a big fan of Angel series. Yeah. Angelus is cool. Yeah. It's difficult. I mean, I don't like calling. I hold on. Let me say. I I won't use troublesome. Uh, I won't use controversial topics and so forth just for the shock factor because I hate the thing. This brings us back to a criticism of Cthulhu, which is a they're bad. So they rape, 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 and it's like you don't need that. But also. Um, but also, you know, you have to accept that bad stuff happens in the world. It's just that you don't need to smack the players over the head with it to reinforce that someone's evil. Or, e- But also, I think that's an important thing. Evil does not equate certain actions. And yeah. certain actions don't mean someone's evil, because, after all, the world of darkness is about shades of grey. And, like, you can be a vampire, 
but find certain things that humans do completely horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and tying back into uh, the question that Alakov had, if you're playing an eld character, you might come from a time period uh, where your moral values have been built up, say, like from the Roman era. <laughs> yeah. They used to do a bunch of stuff that most of us would be like, what? Really? No, oh, this is socially acceptable. You know, uh, you know, uh, you, you then being in modern era, what humans do, or what they consider to be uh, normal, <coughs> allows you to give a sense of horror about that character, but it's a, it's a sense of horror that, you know, he doesn't see the evil in his actions, and might be the person preaching on about the, you know, you can't trust the Tremere because they're all, you know, demon worshippers and what have you, but then on the same uh, same vein, he's having a bunch of people crucified because they upset him. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's that balance, like you say, if it's, if it's horror for a reason, rather than, ah, oh, there's a million people crucified in front of this guy, wow, wow, okay, yeah, yeah that's not really that horrifying, that's just a statistic, isn't it, so. I mean, something that was brought up in, as I go back to this for a bit, but we're talking about a lot about, like, torture in multiplayer mm-hmm. games, and that you can get this thing where, I, I, I mean, I've not experienced it, and the fact is in the last session, torture was a, was a story point in the, in the game session. So, the whole idea is, like, that apparently players can take the approach of, like, a very torture porn kind of, like, approach, almost like a sore kind of thing with, like, oh, we're going to torture this guy and get all the information out of him. And it's like, I think, I think for World of Darkness, you don't need to game it. Like, if you're going to approach torture, it can be used as a way of being very, you can, you can show the, you, what you want to do is show with the element of violence and, and, uh, and potentially gore, because of course vampires find colourful ways to do torture. Um, you can, uh, describe the battle of wills between the person that is performing the torture, who may have limits to how far they're willing to go to cause harm, and the person being tortured who has a limit to what harm can be done to them. And I think that's more interesting than the kind of, like, the gore element, is to get behind the, the, the psychosis of, like, even you know, even though someone's a bad guy, there's a limit to what they're going to do. Or like an, a 1984 kind of torture, rather than a, uh, a sore kind of, I'm going to teach you a bloody lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, people may not be willing to kind of role play that out or role play, um, or role play the, uh, that level of gore. Because that's another thing. It's like, how much gore do you put into the game? I mean, to be honest, it's like, if you're going to play Vampire World of Darkness games, surely you should be kind of, I would, I would imagine you kind of watch certain types of film you like the culture. Yeah, but it's important. Well, yeah. The way my players come up to blood and gore and what have you in Vampire at the minute is they're all kind of like coming up uh, vampires in the kind of idea of blood junkies. Mm. And that's how they much look at it because they're all kind of modern vampires. So a lot of them looking at it. Um, they all see it as a terrible waste. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would, that would be perfect way to describe it, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, why would we go in, machetes all are carving when we could just knock them all out and then uh, feast on them? Yeah, yeah, which makes it even more horrific. You think about it, yeah. you know, you know, we'll sarring we'll gas them all to death, and then we'll suck them dry later. I'll be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, I mean, again, with the level of violence, and you're getting onto like, well, with um, you know, you can deal with like, uh, kind of like 
how torture or any of that thing occurs. It's very different in different games. Like Werewolf is very yeah. visceral. Um, Mage, though, the level of violence or, or, or harm can be very esoteric. This could be literally flaying someone's soul apart. And then something like in Promethean, you're dealing with like kind of classic kind of body horror, kind of Cronenberg style kind of things. Um, and then that leads us really, I think, onto, I think, torture them. I think, I, am I happy in saying that we're all happy that, as long as it serves a good story point and that it is about that battle of wills, you can describe as much as you need to get the point across. You can game it a bit if you want to roll the dice to see who's got the best willpower and who can survive it the most and role-play that element of the, the, the battle of those worlds. But, you know, you don't need to get really grotesque with it. So that really brings on to... Oh, yeah, go on. Yeah, so, like, this is this is one of the things that I, I did want to mention with um with the whole topics of where you're, where you're happy for something to go, and this, this applies to the whole subject in general, but with torture, that's quite a reasonable way to put it. But when, when dark content is used possibly on one player against another. I I have been in groups where the team has kind of turned on each other at points. Um, when I played Mage, I was I had my soul stripped from me and Cthulhu promised I could have it back if I sacrificed my whole party. <laughs> um, but I was a priest of Cthulhu, so you know, he's he's God. You don't mess with God. He tells you what to do, he you, you do it. Um but you know, that's that was a point at which I had to basically use characters against each other and manipulate them to do what I wanted. And in a similar sense, uh, I've also had a situation where um, someone decided to seduce the character I was playing and make me sleep with them. Um, ah, yeah, that's... that's, and, that's yeah, it's when you're using that content on other people... Um, even content which you might be happy with as players, like, you know, oh yes, my character goes to a bar and tries to hook up with someone, that becomes a very different thing when you're doing it to each other. Especially when it's like, uh, I think, especially when it can be done, it can almost feel like it's been done vindictively, and often it, I think, because there's rules, when you're using the rules against another player to get what you want, it does feel very vindictive, yeah. and it doesn't feel very collaborative. Um, I mean, uh, that, and that, that's also kind of gets into the thing of like, whether you're happy with one, you know, one player may want to back, backstab all the rest of the group to, to another group. And that's happened in Vampire, that's also happened in, in Changing Games. Um, and James, as you said, that's happened with like the Cthulhu element, with your mage character. And I think everyone needs to be happy with the idea that potentially one player could go off and fuck everyone over. Yeah, but in some games it's almost a given. If you take games like, uh, say, uh, Paranoia, which is oh, a yeah. Game, yeah, yeah, that's a given that everybody's at each other's throat. For me, Vampire the Masquerade is also a little bit like that. That you all got these uh, these different kind of uh, clan loyalties, your political loyalties, and also this idea that you know that just the jihad is raging all the time. The war between the young and the old is going on all the time. So that's part of the curse of being a vampire. So this sense that, you know, you can't really trust anybody, not even other members of your own coterie. So a certain amount of backbiting, backstabbing, and one-upmanship is always part of a given for that game. Same werewolf, I'd say it's very different, because unless you want somebody to be the great betrayer of the pack, mm. it's much more of a, a given that you work together. 
Um, let me to this suspension again. It's it's one back to one of those situations where, for me, a certain amount of skullduggery is because it makes it more about ideas rather mm. than heritage or something that you are because of your lineage. You know, you, uh, you know, your 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 avatar can just awaken. No problem. It can be for nobody in your entire history could have uh, ever awakened, but you could. Um, and it's just about those choices that you make. Um, I don't know. Uh, some of these things are just how you're going to deal with all this kind of level of darkness in your games. Um, it's always a difficult thing. Like you said, talking about your players is, is a, a great start. So I feel I meandered a bit there. Sorry, guys. No, it's cool. Um, I think leading on from that, character death. Because, okay, let's let's put it this way. Um, some games are very violent in their design of the world. So Unhallowed Metropolis, James, as we know, Oh, yes. Your character can descend to the very... I don't know what my pet's doing. <laughs> He's swining. Anyway, back to the point. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, on Hello Metropolis, you, you, it has a system that promotes your character descending more and more corruption, which is essentially saying descend the level of humanity until they basically can't be played anymore. But also, it's very violent. Like, the chance that your character will die is quite high, based upon the rules. Uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition... Also quite similar, like your character could die a really bad way, very quickly. Like uh, cyberpunk. Yeah, cyberpunk, I think the same. Uh, I think Cthulhu's can also be quite violent in that sense. Um, so some games are a given that you you could get through characters quite quickly. And it depends how game-mystic you approach that. Now, of course, some players may not be happy that they're, for them, the reason they've come to the game is to enjoy the story. And they don't want to see their precious character die because they've invested in the background of it. And they want a bit more control in the, in the way harm, I would say not harm, but the end of the character will occur whenever that does occur. And I'm pretty cool with that. Like, if a player's okay with their character dying, then I will work out, I was, if they're cool with it dying, then I will let the dice do what they say. And I've done that. I've actually let play. I've actually let them roll it twice to see if their character died. And unfortunately, they fucked up twice, so their character got blown up. Um, and that was in a Fading Suns game. But sometimes players aren't really happy with that. Like for them, the excuse to role play that character is the the escapism, and so to see that character die is kind of a is a bit shit. So I don't know. How do you feel about that or with well, characters I think dying? The understanding yeah. needs to be sort of so you know possible. in all. <laughs> Um, it'll be done sort of as fairly as possible, but shit happened. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, ev- everyone has, like, the idea of their character's destiny. You know, you, you look at your character and you think, like, this is, this is who they are, these are their goals, and this is where they want to achieve. I mean, mine, mine are always flawed to the point that they, they almost fall apart as I play them. So they, their <laughs> life, yeah, yeah, their life expectancy can't be very long. But, sometimes, even even an ignoble death in a back alley being stabbed by some poor schmuck who, you know, managed to get one over on you. Yeah. A stupid barbell. Sometimes that, that is a character's destiny. You know, they thought they were they thought they were gonna change the world and then they got taken down, you know. It's it's the nail in the horseshoe, you know, one stupid nail falling out of the horseshoe means that the horse gets crippled and the war gets lost and the, the army never gets there. Yeah. Um you know, you can be brung low by anything. And that's that's part of the risk. And something like that happening can actually, like, it can help your gaming groups um, 
realise that there's a big problem. Now, you don't want it happening all the time. Yeah. I've played I've played D&D where pretty much every session one of us would have a new character because someone had died. Wow. Um, well, but, and I bet... No, sorry, go on. I, I approach character death as being something that's always on the cards that, you know, you could die. Nobody's got a preordained destiny that, you know, is, is written in stone. Now, um, I've... In my current campaign, I've hinted at one of the players who has taken a dark fate flaw, you know, the, the, the big five-point flaw in the old uh, World of Darkness system. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to reinforce the rest of the group that his fate was going to be truly dark because, um, to a certain degree, he's got a kind of rising star kind of uh, part to his character. But there's always a given between me and the player that he's going to die at some point, probably at the height of his power. He's coming almost at the top of this kind of arc now, and the visions of his death are becoming more apparent as other members of the group have uh, been speaking to Malkavians about this kind of stuff. He's going to be consumed by a Vozard in the final battle against the Sabbat, which is quite horrifying for this kind of guy, but he accepts that as a player, that that is his end. And he's like, kind of like, well, if it's going to happen now, I may as well just go out and out and just you know, go straight into it. The rest of the group doesn't see why he's doing that, how he's being so fatalistic, because they're all worried to death that they're going to die. Um, uh, lots of them are trying their best to, to like, uh, hold back from things. And if they get into combat, they're, like, too timid, and so always seem to be flaccid. Um, and one of the big things that I've always said to them is, you know, I'm not going to punish you for making a bad dice roll in a combat situation. That, you know, everybody can make that dice roll that they should make, but they don't, and so it all just goes horribly wrong. Why should it happen for the player like that? Certain amount of not tap backing, but leeway uh, or a divine intervention, a divine intervention of some kind, just to all right. Well, you're still messed up. You're still in torpor, but you're not finally dead. Uh, you know, um, to allow the player to, uh, some kind of comeback, especially if they've done something that really wasn't their fault. Or something that somebody else in the group started. Because that's the other problem when players get involved in other pl- pl- players' problems. Yeah, well, I think you can see it in a different, in a, another way is that role-playing has its roots in wargaming. And wargaming is very deterministic. Mm. As in, like, you know, you roll the dice and that's it. Because you're playing one player against another. So you, the rules are there to mediate, to allow fair play. But role-play, how do I say, role-play's maybe not about fair play. It's about fair storytelling. Mm. And, you know, if you're basically recreating, you I mean, to my mind, my way of approach is I'm basically doing a TV series. And so, you know, someone fucks up on the dice and the character's about to die and it's like, you know, roll credits or roll, or roll the TV, roll the, uh, the ads and we get back and then we see their character has somehow miraculously survived or they're in a really bad state and they have to deal with the consequences of that. And that and the fact is that sometimes leaving a character maimed or or in a bad position offers more, story, yeah. offers more storytelling potential than just dying. Mm. It's it my angst. favourite thing. Angst. Absolutely. Oh god, I'd be dead. anyone. <laughs> so, but obviously, you know, players also will approach whether they want their character to die or not. And it's, um, it's, yeah, it's difficult. You need to talk to them beforehand. I think that then really brings us to the last item of difficult things. And it's like really difficult things. It's like acknowledging 
elements within uh, elements of things that can that can happen to characters happen to or within the game because it's the world's darkness. It's the real world made a bit darker. Um, is things that you know you need to be aware of things that could be tri- that could be triggering or problematic to, car- uh, to players and the fact that not everything has to be role played and that you can do you know fade to blacks and uh, or or deal with it as a blue book. So you know let's start with let's start with the, the nicer I say the nicer things. Let's deal with the fact that you know, you can have romantic interest between characters, player characters, or or player character and non-player character, and like it can be difficult to role play out, and it can just be a bit awkward. And sometimes it's best to just do the fade to black. You know what's happening off screen. No one, no one, everyone knows about the birds and the bees and the bats and the and the vampires. And you can always, if you want to elaborate on those things later, you can always do that retroactively through through emails on your blog or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So you can always re-elaborate on it, and it's often easier to write about those things than to role-play them. Everyone, and then, then you add something extra to the game as a written content to the game rather than just on-the-spot role-playing. And that leads to like the whole point about, as you said, James, with seduction. Again, seduction leads us into, I seduce your character so they have to sleep with me. Now, that's maybe fine between a player character and NPC. That's more difficult when it's between a player character and a player character, because that's about, as we said, death is a difficult thing for players to maybe approach their character. It's also just losing control of their character. And you want to do that in a fair way. So recently, I ran, so the last, the first story of my Vampire Chronicle for season two has been a reworking of the Vampire SAS, uh, Vampire the Requiem Adventure, called Blood Red and Ash Grey, which is where one of the player characters wakes up having uh, frenzied and killed another vampire. Now, as we all know, that would, that's a breach of the masquerade and breach of, what, breach of the traditions. Mm-hmm. And so the whole point is you've forced a player into that scenario, but you're not going to punish them for that scenario. The whole point is you've put them in that scenario to offer good storytelling potential. Mm. And so that's often the thing about when you have a player being seduced by an NPC, or vice versa, is because you're trying to offer storytelling potential. So I think when it's when you're offering the option of like seduction or mind control between between player characters, yeah. it should be there to offer storytelling potential, not to be a vindictive dick to go, I can control your character. They're putty in my hand, <laughs> bend over, rubber gloves on, um, and all that madness. And then that brings us on to the other troubling thing, which is, of course, the, you know, can these things be triggering? And, of course, mind control is essentially a mental version of rape. And dealing with that dangerous, that difficult content and similar type content. So how do we all feel about that? that Sam pipes up, she goes, rubbing hands. Um, yeah, it's another thing that should be discussed between players because, you know, it's one thing, it's, it's very different. You can't sort of say, my character's going to mind control your character now, you can't do anything about it, so shut up, right? And, it, it, you know, and then, or you could say, um, my character's kind of being an asshole about this, but um, would it be okay if they kind of wanted to mind control you? Is that a problem? Or, you know, it's... It's taking a different approach to something you want to do rather than being like, I'm doing this and that's the end of it. Mm. You know, make sure people are sort of comfortable with being godless. Yeah. 
I would also say this, there's one good thing, and this is true mostly also of the World of Darkness MMO. Um, World of Darkness games self-mediate themselves in these scenarios, because they have a morality scale. So if you start doing this crap, your character will be diminishing in whatever morality trait it is, and will become a non-player character by the time you do this too much. So there's that element as well, that the game kind of helps reinforce that this is bad shit you're doing. Like, obviously, it's better that you've got player consent to do a bad thing, and then you deal with the consequences of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's pretty good, because I, I, I played uh, a game with someone who had a very low humanity, and they, you know, they did a load of horrible stuff, but no one expected them to do any differently. And when we, when we found out that they had started with a very low humanity score, that gave us an idea of the kind of game we were getting into. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, too. Um, mm. There is something interesting that I thought that um, occurred to me while Sam was speaking, and she was saying this point where you say, um, she was saying a character could, someone could, oh no, blah, blah. a player might say, my character is going to do this. But there was another point where Sam said, I am going to control your character. And that's quite an interesting distinction to make when you play roleplay games, because some people do get very much into character, and it becomes, I am doing this, yeah. I am that. And that can make that kind of, yeah, again, you know, it's like points at which content becomes more inappropriate. Um, but that can be quite unpleasant when it becomes, I am go- going to control you. As I to- am going to kick your dog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you guys ever seen uh, Babylon 5? Yes, of yes. course. Okay. Yeah. Then do you know how then how the character Alfred Bester is always treated every time he comes on board? Because he mm. is a psychop and he has a reputation for doing things like, for want of a better word, mind rape. Yeah. Doing slightly uh, illegal things, uh, or what, what could be seen even in vampiric society, rather ghost things, of trying to read people's minds to gain their secrets. He would be treated like absolute scum. Yeah, in social situations, they, they would uh, enforce that things were in place that he could not use these things. You know, like in, uh, let's say, like in B5 again, they've got those uh, Membari telepathic points just to follow him around so he can't read their minds. Great. Because why, you know, as soon as, as, soon as that, that, uh, that happens, that's a kind of stigma that character has to follow around with then. And so that's a, a, another thing that uh, if NPCs do it to PCs, the NPC gets the stigma of it that the, the rest of the party hate them. The PCs start doing it to another PC member, they'll find themselves ostracised by the group pretty quickly or not trusted pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, so it's that level of like, well, I could just rip your secrets from your mind, but I best not because everybody will hate me. And if I've got nobody backing me up, I'm pretty much dead meat. Yeah. Because I've got yeah. a reputation for doing this. And you guys are the last bunch of people who are going to trust me. Uh, um, and, 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 but always have it there that if your character does do these things, that, you know, there are, like Chris keeps saying, consequences. And the consequences for, for doing something really heinous should be something really heinous. And that's, that's the thing about uh, a storyteller, I think. Uh, that level of uh, what you throw out should come back at you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point about everything I run is everything is about consequence. And I think that's where, when you hear horror stories about the vampire player, you know, vampire chronicles where they're basically playing vampire superheroes, it's overindulgent storytellers. You know, you, everything is, World of Darkness is all about consequences. You, you know, it, you kill someone, someone, someone somewhere cares, or their ghost is going to come back. 
or mm-hmm. or you've killed some vampire's favorite little pet, or you've killed someone else's favorite little pet. And so the whole point about World of to my mind, the whole point about World of Darkness games is is how far are you willing to go to do something and get away with it? Exactly. <laughs> and and usually it's it, it's how it's it's getting away with it means doing something also really bad and getting away with it until you create this massive domino effect of terrible things all involved to get away with it. Um, my, uh, my, my last uh, vampire thing, uh, one of the players was uh, entrusted by the Nosferatu to take care of a DJ that was going to be playing at a Torridor party. And that's all he said, just take care of him. Uh, make, sure, make sure he doesn't play at this, uh, this party. So the, the, this uh, PC goes off, meets this guy, first just walks up to him like he's never met the guy in the street, and says, hey, what's up? Let's go for a coffee. And this guy's like, no way. I don't know who you are. You're some kind of weirdo. This goes on down the street to the guys who basically like, just go away, fuck off, leave me alone. So the player character's then, only option he felt was to stab him to death in an alleyway. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> He was with another PC at this point in time. And, and they stuffed his body in a dumpster and left. Realising they didn't have money, they had to go back to the body, get money off it, and then to go and get a, a cab to meet the rest of the PCs. While this had gone on, the PCs had been hired by the, by the Toreador to find out what's gone on to this DJ. Oh, they go looking around, and pretty soon they come across an alleyway with his body stuffed in a dumpster. They go back to the, uh, the, the, the kind of nightly meeting of the PCs, and they're like, so, what have you guys been up to? Nah, nothing much. What about you? And uh, they're like, oh, we're looking for this dead DJ, if you know anything about it. And everyone's like, oh, oh. And the, the, the guy who watched the other guy stab him, he goes, it was him! He did it! He did it! <laughs> and, and, and it's the consequences from that. Uh, was the rest of the group got involved and found out what they'd done. You know, and he felt bad about doing it then because he misunderstood what he meant by take care of. Uh, and it's the, the consequences, it, it, the, the, the Nostradamus and Torida, hate them. Yeah, so... Uh, well, that's the whole point of, like, what I ran for Vampire then just recently, because as, as I said, like, you know, one of the player characters, like, the person that was new to our group, their character wakes up in a, in a stairwell of a car park with a vampire corpse next to him, mm. and then has to deal with, well, who is this person I've killed? Trying to find that out. And then why did everything happen? And then I modified it a little bit more, which was that everyone, he said that the whole clue that I tried to get pulled away at, that people finally get you know, like kind of got people to understand us. It wasn't that some there were there were people investigating that murder, that final death, who you would think would not actually give a shit. You're like, hold on a minute, why is this so important? And then it became more about it was people asking not how this person died or or or, or who killed, but where? And you're like, what? And so basically, they found out that the um the the murdered vampire. Uh, which they, uh, the person that murdered them, uh, incinerated the body, got rid of it. Um, uh, they recovered from another person, uh, who had been following and trying to make a deal with the information. Because like, I know you killed them, you're gonna make a deal with me. Um, was ferrying information between, uh, was like taking, was ferrying information, like stealing it from one group and giving it to another. Mm. And this information was on a date, on a memory card. And where, was, where, if you're a vampire, where do you hide a memory card? You can hide it inside yourself, because you can quite easily, you know, rip, out, rip your guts open and pull it out later. Um, 
and heal it up, you know, just like that. And that's exactly what happened. So, um, you know, again, it was the consequences of you've killed this person and, and it, it became more interesting because the player was trying to work out who should I confess to that I've killed someone? Mm. And can I confess in a way that means that, that I owe them something that means I don't die? That was basically a question of how much am I willing to, to do in order to confess and get everything going my way? And that was really interesting because they confessed to someone who was like, ah, okay, I'm glad you came to me about this because I now need you to do something for me. And it's like, uh, yeah, vampires classically don't give a damn about people. So, um, that was good fun. Um, yeah, so consequences, the whole point is consequences. There's always consequences and people that troll the game will get consequences against them, which is either A, Everyone says, no, we, we're not playing the game like that. B, you can do that, but like, obviously our, our characters will wise up and start watching your character from now on, and if you do it again, we'll kill you. Or, or C, if you're going to play like a complete dick, you can leave the game. Yeah. Does that kind of cover that point, James? Anything more? Steve? Sam? Uh, or have we covered difficult topics in, with, with stuff? I think I think we're um we good for different Oh no I think I think that leads on to one last thing, actually. And I don't know how how this feels how everyone feels about this, is and this goes back to again, content in games, is how you deal with like the way games are presented because, you know, like artwork and whether a game is too sexist or prejudiced or in whatever sense. I would like to think world like White Wolf games have improved over the years. Like in early days, there was some really weird, bad, questionable artwork, and that they moved away from that and they've matured quite a lot. Um, I think sometimes it's it's difficult for certain games. Like Vampire has certain connotations of what a vampire game is about because of the related media, and so they kind of you, you're trying to sell it to your audience. But how far is that that you're selling to the audience to the point that you've actually gone beyond and you're just being you're just pandering and you're just going, look, it's good tits. It's like mm-hmm. the classic exalted cover where the sorceress has a camel toe. I, gee, gee, god damn it. Well, um, it's the and, uh, you know, the art of sort of a gateway drug. Yeah, yeah. Drug. A gateway drug. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, but then people might be fans of, you know, True Blood, or they might exactly. be more fans of Buffy, or more fans of Vampire Diaries, or something. You know, and, and those shows all have completely different themes. Yeah. You know. Well, I, I think that, um, for Exalted, one of the big things for those types is, uh, should we say, a bit more extremes, because they're based in the whole kind of anime kind of thing. Yeah. And anime, even normal anime, has a certain amount of of um, shakshi shakshi. <laughs> yeah, shall we say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fan service. Yeah, yeah, fan service. Yeah. Um, and so that's reflected in Exalted because it's always said it's had one nod towards anime. Um, I know what you're talking about for the old World of Darkness. Uh, for some of the, uh, the the artwork there was, like you say, a bit. Well, you've just chucked that in. But there's other bits and pieces that was. In equally as dark books that was a bit more haunting, that they got exactly right and yeah. wasn't so wrong. Uh, one of the best pictures I ever saw was um, in the, um, the, Ch- the Carnal Life of Europe, uh, the, the Shoah, 
the Black Dogs Game Factory book for the race line. Yeah. And it's got um, thousands of people standing on a riverbank that's at night uh, that are all in those kind of uh, concentration camp kind of pyjamas. Yes. And there's one guy, one kind of ferryman, taking one person at a time in the shore. There's people up to their hip in water. The, the shoreline's covered in thousands and thousands of people. Mm. You know, uh, that's an interesting start to that book that got yes. it off yeah. really, really well. There's other books like Montreal by Night. Um, that's got some stuff in there that doesn't really need to be in there. Like some of the, uh, the life, uh, Jones kind of, uh, artwork is a bit, hmm. And that, I, I really do feel that set, setting the scene is like, I know that you were saying once that you, you like to use images, uh, of kind of rotating around as you're playing, uh, yeah. something that, uh, I used to do in the past as well. Uh, you know, like the Christopher Shy kind of stuff. Yeah, that works great. Right. Yeah, but there's a lot of nudity in that as well, but yeah. it's done in a, in, a, in a much better way because that's more like a piece of what we would perhaps consider a traditional art rather than some of the more comic book effect mm-hmm. art that you see in some role play games. Um, yeah. And it's it's that that look at the, what you're dealing with. Is, is it a good piece of art in its own sense? And the subject matter is then just reinforced or is it just a bit mm, it's just somebody I, with their tits out yeah. how I, I had an agenda with Exalted which was um, when it came to the characters I knew the point would come on the characters uh, would would have the opportunity to indulge in in prostitutes because it's prostitution's part setting and yeah. Exalted approach to slavery and so I was committed to ensuring that that Gender meant nothing for that because Exalted is very is meant to be and is written and it's said that way. Then it's very fluid and no one really cares. So religions and so I I ensured that was presented in that way and I was glad that uh, you know I think I think it was did I I hope Sam did it did it come across right that I was trying to get that point across. Uh, yeah, I mean no one else seemed to have a problem with it. Yeah, which was a good thing. Yeah, they didn't really care about it was there. Steve's character, who was, a, who was a big northern barbarian. He said he was going to get some prostitutes, but he didn't specify. He didn't specify he which, so I gave him a selection. <laughs> <laughs> and he, 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 he did both male and female. And, and I was like, cool, I'm glad you played ball with that. I was like, you, you chose the pretty young man and the owl woman and another one. And I was like, fair enough. Sounds like a radical time. Um, but, um... Yeah, it's, yes. But, um, but like, I think it's important that, I, I really do think, I, I hope anyway, I think the, I do feel like the World Dance games have improved in their artwork depiction, like, some of it's a bit more race, but again, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel too sexualized, and, and it does present quite horrific stuff, like, again, like, one of my favorite pieces of art recently has been that blood sorcery of the, the person pulling the eyeballs out as a as a sacrifice to do some blood sorcery, and that's really wicked. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's imp- I think it's improved a lot since the early, since like masquerade times, I would say, and I, mostly way back when. It's like some of the problematic masquerade artwork I've never really seen until someone shown shown it to me. So that just shows you because I came into masquerade during like revised, so it wasn't in the books that I was reading. So, um, I, could, I could say that at the time, for me and my friends at the time, it was absolutely unshocking at all because we were teenage guys that were, you know, kind of counterculture. You know, <laughs> the conversations we were having were darker than any vampire book that was ever out there, you know, and it's just, 
it's one of those, it, it, you know, these things where they say, talk about role play books being, oh, you know, they're full of sex, and they're full of violence, and yeah, that's part of it, but then that's part of the world as well. It's just part of much, you know, of, of our world, and if you shut yourself out from these things, that, I mean, it, it, it does my head in sometimes that, uh, you know, role players especially have got this kind of stigma of being these things that are like, you know, you know, ooh, especially in like, the, like the, in the States where you've got these things where, um, the, the stigma is you know, you're all de- devil worshippers and you're all doing these these things like Adrian was telling me that's Adrian Stagger Bob yeah. and I was saying that in Australia in Queensland oh, um, no. um, there were laws passed that you weren't allowed D&D on any school campus at all and, that, and as far as he knows that's still the law out there right now but you're allowed to play Masquerade just not D&D weird um, but then that's the kind of stigma that D&D's got about it but of all the games I've ever played most D&D characters, if a devil turns up, they're more likely to, like, pull swords and, like, let's kill it, rather than make a deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in Masquerade, if demon turns up, you're like, cool. Yeah. yeah. How can I use this to my advantage? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, James, you've mostly got an opinion about this, because obviously you come from, you, you know, you're heavily involved in the games industry, so, and that's got hells to fight with with depiction and artwork and, you know, adult content and so forth. And we've got the whole history of Grand Theft Auto and other such games getting getting uh, dealt with and, and, and almost kind of give, called out as, as, you know, governmental bogeymen for, like, games are making children and... Well, not children, I would say gamers into killers and so forth. Um, I mean... You know, we, we get, we do get a lot of bad rap. And unfortunately, and unfortunately, you know, however much, like, I mean, I, this is kind of a, a sore issue for me at the moment because I was working on a game and, um, they put out some content that, uh, I, w- I was involved with from the design side, but not from the art side. Um, okay. and they created a character who, for someone who is out in space, they were wearing a lot less than they should have been wearing um, for wow. a spacesuit. Uh, and I felt very bad about that because it's kind of, you know, we, we, I was trying to sell an idea um, design-wise and then it got this visual uh, pass. And, you know, the art team the art team did, you know, they, they did a good job on what they'd been told to do. Um, but it was very awkward because it meant that, like, the thing that I was, the feel to the update I was trying to do, I was trying to do something which was um, quite honest and straightforward, and then it became this thing where it was like, hey, guys, look, it's boobs. Don't we all love boobs? Um, oh. And, you know, that's, it sells things, but, I mean, it, it, it's not the violence kind of thing, but you, you, you can get that as well, where a game becomes, I mean, gosh, I, I, I see things like God of War, I saw God of War at Eurogamer, and he, the guy was just ripping things in half and splattering blood everywhere. And I just thought, I don't, I don't see. Well, I think what you've you, you've got onto that. We say with computer games. I mean, the whole point of computer games when you hear like people from like the media level going, "Oh my God, what the things games like." Yeah, but the people playing these games, right? Well, I would say half the problem is parents not being aware of what kids are buying. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help. Well. I mean, it also the, doesn't help, like, just players in general being a bit more, and they just being handed to again, aren't they? Yeah, well, uh, a games console is not a babysitter. 
No. It's not, it, 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 it is not an amoral uh, thing like Sesame Street, which is not going to ever put anything that's going to be, you know, sensitive or, you know, damaging in any way, shape or form in front of your kids. Um, you know, a game console can. A role-play, a role-play book, exactly the same way, can do exactly the same thing. But then that's up to, like, uh, parents, like you said before, up to them to, think... to make uh, choices like that. And adults who are... Uh, should we say, incapable of telling the difference between reality and fantasy are the kind of minority of people that give everybody else a kind of bad rep, really. Because yeah, most of us... Oh, sorry, Chris, after you. No, go for it. Just uh, well, well, most of us can tell the difference that we do these things because they are fantastical. They are, yeah. you know, a, a, a break from the mundane that is, you know, possible to pretend to be a vampire for an evening... And, and, and put that back in a box and then go back about in your normal society, you know, like you're not a blood-crazed, you know, killer. You know? If you were going to say so. Um, I think that's very true of uh, sort of violence in games and stuff, but as for your previous point on sexism in games, yeah. and especially in also games, that is a whole other issue, and I think that could be an entire other dark playing podcast, which... You know, if you ever want me to talk about that, I could talk for six hours about <laughs> that issue, but that's a complete topic, and it's not the game. No, it's a bigger problem. I, I think what what I was get was getting at with like the art content in games, and uh, well, I'm trying to get at with World Darkness games. So I I think I hope that current World Darkness games, like the artwork, has a better balance which respects the idea of what the games are meant to be about, like their horrific world, but aren't doing it. They get the horror across without trying to sexualise the horror too much, I hope. I mean, sometimes, like with vampires, vampires are presented as sexual creatures that has a certain, there's a certain amount of, like, legacy of, like, media that leads into that, like that. And I see it less in other World of Darkness games, that sexy kind of, look at the sexy mage, you never see the sexy mage in mage, because mage artwork isn't, Selling that the game isn't really about that, whereas Vampire does have that. Well, um, I would say on on that point that um, I don't think that kind of art is perpetuating misogynistic culture any more than other mainstream media. Mm. As we all know, mainstream media is perpetuating that culture. So I'm not I'm not saying it's worse than that in particular, but I'm saying it's pretty much the same because that is the culture that's going to So. You know, I, I don't think there's any particular blame to be played. Yeah. But I think, I think it could get better. Everything yeah. could get better in that sense. I, I think it, um, more could be done to possibly recruit female gamers as well because, um, well, a lot of people will be put off. Well, to be honest, I mean, I think generally, I think, I think Eddie Webb would know more, has more relate, would know more about the, uh, the numbers on this, mm-hmm. but it's technically, it's, it's pretty much common knowledge that World of Darkness games, especially World of Darkness Larks, generally you create a 50, almost a 50-50% uh, um, recruitment on the genders. And um, and that's been pretty much like one of the things that World of Darkness games and White Wolf games and, and now Onyx Path has been commended for on that part. And I think that's that's also quite telling about like the gaming groups I've... I've yeah, that we've had. I mean, I would I would say I would like to have more female gamers in my gaming groups just because it offers more, you get more perspectives on things and a different style of approach rather than, than what you get with guys because you can kind of guess what guys are going to get into. Not to be sexist or, or write, you know, stereotypes in that sense, but 
you know, you know what I mean with that. And I think that's commendable for World of Darkness games, generally. Well, I mean, a lot of the time, um, you can only be as good as the group you're working with. Yeah, about. obviously. People <laughs> bring their own issues and their own opinions to the table as well. And I don't think, you know, we can just put the blame on, oh, this artwork is sexist. You know, that wasn't the point I was getting that. You know, I was just kind of saying that, that it can be an issue, but, you know, I'm not saying that sexism is a massive problem. I'm just saying that, you know, girl gamers are not very well represented. And I also think that with certain artwork and certain, you know, even in media, you know, stereotypes of, say, female vampire characters, usually very sexy characters, uh, they might feel pressured to play a certain type of character. Mm-hmm. That is the expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking with artwork as well, and this goes back to something with Exalted and what you said, Steve, is that sometimes... Sometimes as much as you want to strive against it and with with the game is that and I've seen this with complaints about certain games because it seems to be what's been called like you could always say like social injustice junkies mm-hmm. who kind of like spring into action the moment every anything seems a little bit too wrong. And like sometimes This can I, all be taken in context. Yeah, this can all be taken in context. It's like I think sometimes you sometimes it takes it's again it's questioning what the it's always really difficult with that because, like, you know, you don't know whether like both genders really want the the article to be that game and what the background behind that game is or or why the art is that way. And sometimes you'd be attacking something when really is just a personal choice. Like, like, well, you you like sexy. There's certain sexy anime characters that you kind of like the outfits for. Yeah. But I mean, but that's because you appreciate the costumes and you like the, the, the look of them. Is- when the characters are degraded to there we go. objects. Yeah. Uh, you can be sexy and also have a personality. Oh, that brings us into comic books, so let's not even yeah. start that yeah, one. But, but that's, exactly, that's exactly right. When you said before that there's um, a certain stereotype that uh, certain sexy vampire characters have, a, and they're sluts, that they come across and they're just, you know, they come across because they're played by men that are going through some kind of, like, strange kind of... Um, uh, fantasy kind of thing, empowering thing. That you, like, like you say, you don't, you don't. Just because you're good looking does not mean that you don't have a fully formed background, yeah. you know, yeah. fully formed personality behind oh, you. That and that you a good point. Yeah, carry on, carry on, Steve. That brings us to one last point. We'll get to. Uh, uh, but then the, 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 the stereotype of you know the. Um, I think it, it kind of sums it up in gaming for me. There was, uh, for any of you guys who know, uh, uh, Knights of the Dinner Table. Okay. Um, um, they were playing a, uh, a VR game, and uh, they were saying, oh, look at all these amazing character options. I can make my chainmail blue or green and what have you. And uh, the female gamer at the table, Sarah, goes, well, I've got two options, a leather thong or a, a chainmail bikini. <laughs> and it was just that that, that, that kind of it, it, it kind of sum, sums up the whole kind of uh, uh, look at uh, the gaming world often when it for females really I think um, I, in my opinion uh, I've only ever uh, I've only ever uh, role played with the girlfriend if, you know, uh, if anybody knows that kind of character type uh, somebody who comes along because one of the players has said oh come along dear you can get involved in what we do they come along and they're like whoa whoa, um, yeah, so I'm going to stab them. They come for one session and never come back. And, but that's just my uh, uh, experience, rather than anybody that I've ever role-played for a long period of time that was female. Wow. And we were quite lucky with changing, I think. Changing was a... No, we're not, we're changing. We had 
other than, if we discount me, because I was um, running the game, we actually had more girls than guys. Mm. Mm. A rarity, I'd say. Yeah, well, I think it's pretty good going. Um, I was quite happy with that, and it worked really well. I mean, it shouldn't work. It, why should it not work really well? It worked, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the point I was going to go to, I mean, unless, James, you've got anything you want to add to gaming-wise, uh, with, huh. with the topic we were covering just then? No, I'm, I'm good. Um, was one last thing, which is related to it, is gender-bending and characters. Because it's hard as a GM play portraying female characters and it's just like just, there's certain things like you just I think just again as you said Steve it's like they're not just just because she's a sexy woman doesn't mean she's a slut or something like that they can be mm-hmm. they, they can be manipulative without being a slut they can be any of those things without being any of the other things yeah yeah just to ensure variety in background and and um, you know it's it's difficult and I find it difficult and I always kind of try and uh, this is why I'm so glad to have Sam here to, in my role play groups because I will always just turn back and was that alright in the last session did I do that right or what should I improve on that NPC it's like I want to do it right I don't want to look like a complete dick doing this mm-hmm. and like so, so so Sam in Vampire you play okay. you play a guy <laughs> I, I, I sort of I go between playing male and female characters you know I don't really have a practice very comfortable with playing games. Yeah, I, I don't think I should do it. Why is that? I'm interested. I'm just told the listeners would be interested in this. Um, I don't actually know, really. I just, I don't have a problem with it, and I find it fun to play a variety of characters, so it's not really anything to do with gender, which is kind of secondary. However, the thing with gender playing characters is, sure, if you're doing it, do not add in your, um, any sandry misogynistic ideas of that character because like, we have experience where yeah. you can have a person play a female a male play a female character yet also then then add on top of that sexist views of how females are and that really destroys the entire role playing of that character um i've never played i've never actually as a as a as a player character i've never played a female character and i don't know i have no real reason for that i just I don't know, um, but like in the Dark Ages game, Donda, he played, a, no, not Dark Ages game, in uh, the Technocracy game, Donda played a female character. And that was cool, we didn't really approach anything that way. I think the only time we were kind of maybe a little crude as a group, uh, and I admit it was a little crude, but he was he initiated with his female character that she was seducing an NPC who we, who we didn't distrust. And she was a progenitor, his character was, she was a progenitor, so she could do, like, bio-manipulation. And so collect, like, little viruses and bacteria that could act as spies. And we're like, look, you just need to get close enough to him, and he can do that. And we weren't, the reason we said that, we weren't trying to be evil, like, God, sleep with him, fuck him, you know, nail him and something. It was like, just get close enough, and then you can plant these bio-spies on him. And, like, you're mostly going to have to get some you know, saliva on him to do that. And it was like, you know, it gets strolled on him. Uh, get a towel. But the whole point was like, you know, we weren't trying to be too mean, like, to make it too sexy, sexy. We're like, well, honestly, like, that's, you know, you could do this. That's your opportunity. We were looking at it more as, like, what you could get, not the, the whole sexiness of that scene. So, Stephen James, like, players, James Benning playing female, you know, males play females, females play males, and, you know, um, I have played a female character, that's the one who got seduced, which was 
uh, the actual character is quite a lot of fun though because um, I I just play my character. You know, it doesn't really matter what gender there is. I I've been asked to play a female character at another point um, just because our GM thought it would be an interesting. It would be nice for the group. You know, even though we were all guys, it would be nice that there were not like so many um, so many guys in the group. And yeah, I think I think it's it's fine. You just have to make sure that. Your character, your character stays true to who the character is, um, as opposed to any conceptions you would have. Mm. Um, yeah, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Well, because um, I'm normally the storyteller for my group, uh, if there's any females to be portrayed um, in my story, I've got to do it. And so I've always had a look at. Uh, Normally looking at films to draw reference for characters rather yes. than literature, because uh, uh, quite a lot of what I read just aren't any kind of strong female characters in it. Anyway, um, drawing reference on that to make sure that I don't have, you know, a, a bimbo or a, the, the dizzy girl or, you know, stereotypes about women that, you know, you often see in films, um, that, that your players are just going to make that character, like, belittled. Mm. Or, or seem rather comical when you're trying to portray something, somebody that's real and, and, and has something to offer them in the plot or your own narrative. Um, and I buy into the idea, like you, Chris, that you know, if you're going to make an NPC, it's got to be for a reason. So they've got to have a, a part to play in what you're going to do. They're not just there for war candy. You know, uh, and portraying these things and not making... You know, stereotypes make it quirky people, idiosyncratic people, yes, but not stereotypical, you know. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see that. Yeah. And then, you, know, you know, how many times have you role-played with other people that then portray people like that? It just seems so pointless and so two-dimensional, because I've never met a woman like that in my life. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's, 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 it's one of those things that, you know, how many times is it... Even in computer games portrayed sometimes that female characters have this kind of ditzy kind of approach. And you're like, what, really? Again? I don't need to see this stereotype again and again and again. Because it doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, um, you know uh, women just have a... Uh, especially when you're trying to portray a game that's not about sex. Like, like Vampire is asexual to me. It always, always oh, seems yeah. to be, yeah, you know, it, it's not about what sex you are anymore. It's about something else. Um, looking at that, uh, I, I brought it up in the Dark Ages thing as well, that that liberation of your sex can, can be a big thing if you're running something uh, like in the Dark Ages or a Roman kind of era, because the, then you are a liberated character, because that would be a massive social change. But in a modern game, you know, women are you know, supposedly uh, as equal as, as men, and that's the, what is often portrayed. Um, perhaps that's not the reality in things, but that's often how it's comes across and you know strong women are out there you know people are like this you know they're not just like I say these dizzy dizzy characters that are just wind me up it just really winds me up excellent <laughs> cool I think that brings us to the end of everything if I look at the show notes yeah we've covered everything we've covered with difficult issues I don't think there's anything more to say on that one so as always uh, we can be, Darker Days can be, uh, contacted by, uh, Darker Days Radio at gmail.com. 
Uh, we have a Twitter, which can also be contacted on Posterous. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. We also have a Google Plus page. What else do we have? Uh, let's think. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and via a variety of other mediums. And I uh, guess at some point we'll be doing Darker Days show number, actual normal show with Mike at some point. And that hopefully will involve something to do with Mummy. I really hope. I hope we're looking towards that because Mummy is on the horizon. The next Chronicle Design Darkroom will be looking at running a session in particular. So we'll be looking at, uh, you know, either doing it as continual gameplay, so the session is part of an ongoing just story or running a part of an episode and just how to put it all together and just how a general session runs for people because we've talked a lot about like getting a player group together and designing an intrigue and chronicle design and getting ideas and you know at the end of the day you've got to sit down and run this stuff so um, we'll talk about sessions and how that works and that will basically bring us to the end of the chronicle design series unless we get some other ideas of what to talk about or anyone asks us any particular questions and we will be looking at doing a new Darkwing series at some point soon, aren't we, Steve? We are indeed. Yes, it's a very good one. It should be very good. Uh, and we'll get James in on that one and other people, because it will involve kind of a... It'll be more of a, a round table kind of thing. So I guess it'll be a lot more tangential and kind of a bit more jokey, because we'll present... It's more of a show-and-tell kind of thing. So... Uh, but we'll reveal more when we're in a position to do that. Yeah, here's one I presented. Here's one I prepared earlier in a true Blue Peter kind of fashion. Yeah, but Blue Peter, after Peter's been held in the river and gone limp and lifeless, um, and properly blue. So all that leaves me to do is to thank my co-hosts for this evening, which has been James. Thank you very much. It's been good. And Steve. No problem. And Sam, who's had her first time on here, and yeah. she was really nervous. Yeah, it was. Thanks for listening to me babble. So. It would be good to get Sam on to talk about something again at some point. I don't know when we find a topic that she feels wants to contribute to. It's good to have a female voice on here. It's Darker Days wants to have a bit more diversity in its corpses. And yeah, so that's everything. So, uh, goodbye.